this episode, Justice League America number 50 and Justice League Europe number 26, cover dated May 1991. And welcome to the 50th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Firewater Podcast Network. Well, it's all right. Actually, it's not really the 50th episode. It's like the 68th episode or something. But we're here to celebrate the 50th issue of Justice League America, and that's how we number the show. So just live with it, people. Uh, my name, by the way, is the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host. But guess what? I have brought along some friends. In fact, every episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues at JLI. Now, we'll chat with my second co-host in a little bit. But my first co-host today is a genuine retired military officer here to help us cover the General Glory Saga finale. Now, as a lifelong comic book fan and training and serving in the military, of course he volunteered as a test subject for government medical experiments <laughs> in hopes of gaining fantastical superpowers. Additionally, he once held a skydiving record at the United States Air Force Academy, but not really in a cool way like Captain America in the movie Winter Soldier. Instead, more in the kind of way that almost involved him bouncing like speedball. Finally, if my co-host ever gets a chance to meet General Glory himself in person, he would have to salute. Because a general outranks a captain. Folks, please help me welcome Captain Entropy. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Captain. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Shaq. Thanks very much. And I just want to point out, of course I would salute a general, especially one who fought in World War II. <laughs> and he defeated the evil eye. I imagine there's probably a special medal for that. <laughs> I wonder who awards it. Nort? <laughs> uh, I'd love to see him in a dress uniform. But, <laughs> but I, I think you have me here under false pretenses, Shag. I, I was told this is a podcast about Publix ice cream, and you're an expert. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm ready to discuss moose tracks and chocolate trinity. I've got I've got a I've got a couple bowls here at the okay. ready. Okay, I'm cutting you off right there. All right, so folks at home, if you skip the comment section or the feedback section of the show, you probably have no idea what Captain Entropy's talking about. The the recent episodes of the show, the comment section has gotten away from me, and you maniacs have decided all you want to do is talk about ice cream from a local grocery store in the southeast, which by the way, I happened to work for for four years when I was a kid. But uh, <laughs> I do love some public ice cream. I really do. But we're not here to talk about that. I'm terribly sorry. What I want to hear more about is you volunteering for Steve Rogers-esque experiments where I'm assuming they used Vita rays on you or something. Is that right? No Vita rays were involved that I remember. But, you know, you can't see <laughs> the Vita rays, so you don't know. <laughs> But the Center for Disease Control wanted to know how long it would take a quote-unquote harmless virus to move through a population of healthy people living and working in a confined space. Now, you mentioned the Air Force Academy before, and that describes the Air Force Academy perfectly. <laughs> so they gave some of us a chance to volunteer to be infected. Now, people often advise against volunteering for things in the military, but I knew that Private Steve Rogers volunteered, and it did wonders for his fitness test score. So I went down to the <laughs> clinic, and I drank a cup of contaminated juice, but I never got any superpowers, at least not any new ones. <laughs> new ones. Okay. Wow. All right. That opens a whole different can of worms. But I, I love that the CDC was testing a virus to see how it passes through a tight group of people. I wonder if that testing ever came in handy, if they might ever need that information again. Well, I, I can't Oof. imagine where it would have come up, but yeah, right. sure, maybe. <laughs> All right. So skydiving. So you almost bounced. Is that what I'm hearing? I've, I skydived once. Now, I was doing tandem. I didn't train for it. I'm not certainly not military. I would get 
laughed out of the military. But uh, so you, you you did this and you held a record. Is that right? That is correct. And like you said, it's a record that nobody wants to hold. <laughs> so the actual record was longest free fall by a basic free fall student at the U.S. Air Force Academy. I held it for two years. It was from my first jump. I rolled out of the plane at 4,000 feet above ground level. I went to pull my ripcord and open my chute about eight seconds later, right on schedule. Everything's going fine. But I only moved one arm in to do it. And you're supposed to move both arms in because if you don't, then you're like a plane with a broken wing and you start flipping. Uh. Yeah. So I was flipping like two faces silver dollar through the air. <laughs> But I thought I had enough time to try and get stable before I attempted to open my chute again. I finally did get stable, but as I moved to open my chute, my automatic activation device fired, and I later found out that I had been in free fall for 17 seconds. So I ended up getting kicked out of the free fall course on a safety violation. Ah. Yeah, it, I don't see why it was such a big deal. I mean, given my wind resistance, I had eight more seconds before I bounced. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I did get to redo the course later, and I graduated at the top of the class. Of course, it, it wasn't a fair competition. I had more experience than any of the other students. So, like another famous captain, you, you sort of changed the conditions of the test. So this was like your Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> hey, th this is one of my most famous screw-ups. If you want to use it to compare me to James Tiberius Kirk, I will absolutely take it. <laughs> you know what the sad part of that story is? Is is that you only well, you said you held the record for two years, right? Yes. That means some poor sad soul, uh, or sad sack, I guess. I guess I should say, right? Uh, some, some poor sad sack comes in after you and was free falling even longer. That poor person. I hope they didn't bounce. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Is one of the requirements that you survive? I mean, is that part of the rule to make the record? You know, and I say every time I say this, I want to knock on wood. But to my knowledge, at least by the time I went through, no one has ever died in the Air Force Academy's free fall course. Yeah. Knocking on wood big time on that one. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah so they were very concerned about, about that kid's automatic activation device and what went wrong there why why it took Jeez. him 19 seconds oh man you guys should have like a, a club with special patches or something oh my gosh <laughs> you know i don't even know that guy's name but i never thought about that before but you're right we should be <laughs> you know there should be like a plaque somewhere with our name on it exactly exactly well i am so excited to finally be talking to you we have chatted through the comments for years we've been emailing each other for goodness knows how long uh, about setting up this recording so i am thrilled to have not only you but also to have a, a true experienced retired military officer here to discuss you know general glory so I'm really excited about this. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm thrilled to, to, to talk on this podcast and actually thrilled to talk about General Glory. So thank you very much. Awesome. Now, before we get too much further, we should take a second to thank our sponsors. Folks, this episode of the JLI podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collectations, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Each episode, we select a collector edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library, and usually it's tied into that month's issue of JLI in some way. Way, shape or form. I picked Captain America Truth trade paperback, and this specific one is the Baker DM variant that has to do with the cover. But basically, what it is, it's collecting the Kyle Baker uh, miniseries Truth, red, white, and black, issues one through seven. And I thought this was pretty fitting uh, in many ways, because first of all, it's Captain America related, General Glory related. It's Kyle Baker, who actually has, you know, like a, a what, 10, 15 page story in this issue. So it just seemed really perfect. And if you haven't read this, folks, I I'm not going to go into a lot of details of it, but you really 
really should. It's a powerful miniseries. It is about the super soldier program in the 1940s and how they experimented on a unit of African-American soldiers. I went into it expecting one thing, and it was entirely different, and it was very powerful, and it really blew me away. So anyway, uh, it's called Captain America Truth Trade Paperback. Writer is Robert Morales. Artist is Kyle Baker. Published by Marvel. It's 168 pages. It is full color, and uh, this one's a soft cover. You can get it for normally $24.99, but you can get it in stock trades right now for $38% off, so it's only $15.49. It's quite a deal, and if you haven't read it, it, it is extremely powerful. So, and you know, if you've seen the Falcon and Winter Soldier TV series, you know, ties right into all that stuff. So, um, now, Captain Enderspeed, it's time for me to ask, you know, all the cool kids who come on the show bring an in-stock trades pick. Did you at least bring one? I think you're going to have to stop using that line, Shaq, because I am not one of the cool kids, but I absolutely did bring <laughs> an in-stock trade items to plug. So, and, and it was really hard to pick. I want to thank you because you helped me fill out my Christmas list by by forcing <laughs> me to go on in-stock trades. So Perfect. There, there were other things like the the, the truth uh, paperback that you just mentioned. There, there were other Captain America trade paperbacks that are all going to be on there. But another book that's going to be on there is a hardcover book from IDW called Super Patriotic Heroes. And the creators listed there are Will Eisner and Various. And of course, Will Eisner is so famous, they named a comic book award after him. And Mm -hmm. Various is probably the single most prolific creator on in-stock traits. They were working in the 40s and they're still working today. Way to go, Various. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So this is all about full-color comic stories from World War II, about true role models of the patriotic ideal and of course because it's World War II and 1940s and the Golden Age mostly fighting Nazis. So do you know Shag who the very first patriotic hero in comics was? You know, I don't. I'm going to assume it wasn't Captain America. Uh, I don't know. It was not Captain America. It was The Shield uh, under Archie Comics. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then there was a lawsuit between Archie and Timely over Captain America's Shield, of all things. And that's why Captain America's Shield is round. That's my trivia uh, nugget for you today. Had no idea. Yep. So this covers not just those two heroes, but also Miss America, the Fighting Yank, Super American, some guy who's on the cover named U.S. Jones, who I'd never heard of before, Hmm. Captain Freedom, Lady Liberty, Major Victory, American Eagle, Captain Victory, and many more. I don't think they covered General Glory, but I'm sure that was just an oversight. (laughs) But so the publisher is IDW. The page count is 224 pages. It's full color. It's a hardcover. It was $34.99, but the in-stock trades price is $17.49, which means you save 50%, which means I beat your 38%. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. That sounds really cool. I didn't know there was so many patriotic themed characters. And there's a lot that obviously I've heard of over the years, but a lot of ones here I didn't. And I've always had a fascination with like themed heroes. So the patriotic stuff is really awesome. Oh, wow. That looks really cool. Well, and that's from IDW, huh? Okay. Well, yep. gr- great pick. Well, folks, for these and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, folks, this episode is also sponsored in part with your Patreon support because running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. Now, a while back, we realized we needed some help with the expenses. So we launched the Patreon and you folks really stepped up to help us keep the network going. So if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support us is by visiting our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And while you're there, please consider supporting the network. And in certain tiers, you'll get mentioned on your show of choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. So our thanks to Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Coos, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker Wright, 
Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Mike Zemkowski, Patrick Mingbolin, Roger Preeb, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks, we need to hear from you. This is a banner issue, right? We have got the 50th issue. It is a General Glory Saga conclusion. we got a lot going on the back end with Justice League Europe and Starro. So get out on the social medias. Use our hashtag, poundfwpodcast, or even better, tag us at JLI Podcast on Twitter, Just League International, Bwahaha Podcast on Facebook, because it is all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Now, Captain Entropy, to be specific, this is how we met, was through social media commentary. You know, you leaving comments on our website and stuff. So I'm thrilled to have this chance to talk to you. You came into the community the same way. So I need to know, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? You know, how'd you discover the book? How'd you fall in love with it? You know, or is this your first time reading it? Which I don't think it is. But anyway, what you got? Well, Shag, discovering the JLI was easy. First off, the house ads with the attitude and the gorgeous Kevin McGuire art had successfully created a buzz. I'm sure you remember since we're both of a certain vintage. Hey now. <laughs> Second, the first issue was just sitting there on the magazine rack of my grocery store when I came in one day. I was 12 going on 13, so I was right in the sweet spot for gorgeous art and snarky shenanigans. <laughs> I was moody like all the other tweens, so I was enjoying some of the dark and violent material that came out after Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, but even I wasn't interested in the steady diet of that, so JLI was a welcome relief. And, and you've talked about how you see JLI comics as a superhero a workplace comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I never thought about it until you said that, but I read them the same way. And my, my favorite TV series to compare them to are MASH and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. In each case, the work they're doing is actually life and death work, and they're really very good at their job, but that doesn't stop them from being goofballs at heart. So now I'm all grown up, and I've had the opportunity to support real action heroes. I can promise you, many of them are exactly the same as the heroes in the JLI. Powerful, amazing, silly, and all heart. Well, that's fantastic. I, I hope most of the ones you encounter aren't exactly like some of the members in the JLI, thinking Guy Gardner and people like that, but... I've met Guy. <laughs> you know that guy, okay. <laughs> you know, I, your comparisons are interesting. I hadn't thought about comparing it to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, because that actually is a really apt uh, comparison with the JLI, because most of the characters in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yes, they're good at their jobs, and they work really hard at it, but they're complete screw-ups. I mean, you know, especially personally. And so Brooklyn Nine-Nine is actually a really good analogy. MASH, I don't know. I mean, does anyone even like that show? I mean, it's uh, it's just kind of forgotten, and I don't think anyone ever wants to talk about it, so I don't know. You mean the show that has a podcast dedicated to it that was the first one to invite me on? Yeah, yeah, I think people do care about that show, Shaq. I, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're just making math noises now. So <laughs> anyway, let's get into this, folks. <laughs> Uh, remember, go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com. There you can see some of the images from these issues. However, folks, these comics are super available. You know, Just League America number 50, you can find it uh, in the be- the back issue bins. You can find it on DC Universe Infinite. You can buy it on Comixology. All kinds of ways. In fact, I read it all three ways to get ready for this. But you can get access to these things easy. But we'll- So we'll post a few images, but just go out there and get the comics, you know? Uh, also, the- while you're there on the website, you can leave comments on the show post. As I said, again, all about building a community. So here we go. This is Justice League America number 50. Woohoo! Celebration time, folks. Uh, published by DC Comics, cover dated May 1991, on the shelves March 12th, 1991. Cover price, now it's higher this month. It's $1.75 because it's a double sized issue. And a cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. Uh, Captain, would you do the honors of describing the cover? Absolutely. I'm going to gush about the cover. So, <laughs> the cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story, as you said, and what a story it tells. It is gorgeous and exciting as as befits what one of the cover blurbs calls the double. 
double-sized 50th issue. The Justice League logo is all done up in Captain Adam Chrome, which is a trademarked color, <laughs> with a red, white, and blue glory bound, the conclusion at the top, and a red, white, and blue America at the bottom that makes you stand up straighter just looking at it. Yeah, true. <laughs> the top half of the cover is dominated by Captain Smith's evil eye orb, all in ominous shades of blue. You can actually see Smith through the porthole, looking like an older, fatter, evil version of Blue Beetle with his flying goggles on. And the orb has two stalks sticking out. They look like the Van de Graaff generators from high school physics that made your hair stand on end back back when we each had hair, Shag. Ouch! Last time I turned on a camera when I talked to you, buddy. <laughs> well, hey, it was almost like looking at a mirror, except that you're at my goal weight. But, <laughs> but they are clearly far more dangerous because they are zapping the heck out of General Glory, Fire, Beetle, and even the Martian Manhunter. They are all exhibiting so much anguish and pain that I am tempted to say electricity is evil. But that oh my seems, gosh. <laughs> that seems like it would be more appropriate on a different Justice League podcast. <laughs> the background is purple to maintain the dread tone, but it's broken up by sparks, lightning bolts, and little explosions caused by the evil eye. Oh, and there's one more blurb advertising the second story, which promises that Guy Gardner meets his maker. No kidding. You know, Guy Gardner's got a trademark on it. How interesting. I guess maybe they're trademarked the font or something? I'm not really sure, but interesting. Yeah, if there's a real Guy Gardner out there, I'm every time this guy signs a check or a contract, he has to pay money to DC Comics. <laughs> So, like, a couple of immediate thoughts that come to my mind is, you know, this cover is, first of all, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. Great use of color, right? But I'm kind of surprised that Martian Manhunter is the forefront character. Given that this is the big conclusion of the General Glory story, I kind of figured, like, General Glory would be the center. I, I guess, it could, you know, you have, I can make all kinds of arguments every which way. I mean, General Glory has had the focus for the last several issues. Maybe that's why. But it's a, a little interesting that it's Martian Manhunter is the center. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, like you said, they probably thought, okay, people get it. General Glory is the focus in, in Glory Bound by now. And seeing Martian Manhunter tortured like that, it's kind of like going back to the JLU cast when they used to uh, zap Superman in the first battle scene and that's how they let you know the threat was serious. Right. Uh, doing that to Martian Manhunter works the same way. Yeah, it's absolutely true. And also, I mean, it's the 50th issue. If you're going to celebrate the JLI, you know, for uh, an anniversary like this, you do want one of the main characters in the middle, you know. With, with the JLI, it seems to me that if you're going to really focus on it, it's either going to be Martian Manhunter, Blue Beetle, or Guy Gardner. Those are like the three probably most identifiable JLI characters, at least to me. Um, when it, that, you know, that's where I see them in, the, in that role. Yeah, I would argue that Fire is up there, and mm. um, especially because she's she's part of the sex appeal aspect of the book, right? True. So, so the fact that you've got Fire, Martian Manhunter, and Blue Beetle right on the front, it's a, the, this is the, the kind of the big three of the JLI, maybe. Yeah, you're not going to mistake this for like Satellite Era or anything, that's for sure. Yeah. Yep. I, I love uh, your description of the Justice League logo being silver like Captain Adam Silver because you know traditionally the 50th anniversary is the gold anniversary so they could have gone with a gold motif however I think it really works better uh, again in the blue I mean I love that you describe the colors because like the blue evil eye looks great you know the lighting up on the gener- on uh, Schmidt's face looks great and then the purple background like I didn't think much about the purple background because here's the thing folks when you read a comic for a podcast you spend far too much time analyzing it and thinking about it you really do kind of it doesn't suck the life out of it, but it does a little bit. So I had to sit here and think about why did they use a purple background? And it all makes sense now because the lightning on here really, really pops. I mean, the lightning effect looks great. And all they are are these little tiny skinny white lines. And it make, it's really hard to make white lines pop out like that. But the purple background is what makes it work. So uh, really great choices of the coloring on this thing. 
Yeah, well, my, my role model for, for cover descriptions is another Air Force veteran you may have heard of named Jared Albrick. Oh, I could tell when I read your description. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't advise listening to Jared on many things, but when it comes to art, he's probably a good source. He sleeps on my couch a couple times a year. I do everything I can not to listen to him. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get into this. So, folks, we have two different stories to cover. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to recap both stories, and then we will come back and talk about all of it together. Because really, it's it's kind of one long story, kind of not. You'll see in a minute, folks. It's it's pretty, pretty great. Uh, so the first story is called A Blaze of Glory, which is a 22-page story uh, with plot by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus. Art for the majority of the story is by Linda Medley and John Beattie. And then for a few pages, we've got a classic Golden Age story by Paris Collins and Dave Elliott. Now, the letter is Bob LaPan, colors to Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, and the editor is Andy Helfer. Then, after that Blaze of Glory story, we have another 14-page story, which is done entirely by Kyle Baker. And I don't even know how to pronounce this, man. It literally looks like somebody fell asleep on their keyboard. Uh, Kitschergarks. Thank you. One more time? Kitschergarks. Yeah, we'll go with that. So, <laughs> you put that into Google to see how to pronounce it, I bet. All right. So uh, if you would, why don't you start us off with the recap of A Blaze of Glory? Absolutely, Shag. So the story opens on a grim scene. General Glory has been in prison for wartime atrocities. He just can't remember if he committed. John Jones is with the general in his cell as are two other men. Glory's wartime sidekick, Ernie, who is convinced the general's guilty, and their comic book chronicler, Joe Mason, who knows he's innocent. Glory's archenemy, Captain Smith, has blown a hole in the prison wall with his giant flying evil Ior. This is a typical but very imposing comic book Nazi murder vehicle. Suddenly, the rest of the JLA show up in a shuttle, and Beetle makes like Maverick with the aerial combat. <laughs> General Glory, the Martian Manhunter, and most of the rest of the League step outside to dismantle the evil eye. Scott Free and his apprentice Shiloh stay inside to bicker, as they've done for several issues. Then General Glory convinces Ernie that despite their differences, they can still team up to fight a Nazi. After an epic display of teamwork, Orion eagerly delivers the final blow, wrecking the evil eye. While Ernie complains about the team's expository dialogue, it's like they're in a comic book or something, <laughs> Beetle and the rest of the team try to help the mortally wounded Schmidt. They can't, but they do hear his spiteful final confession. Schmidt describes how General Glory's government contact, J. Newkirk Sharp, sprung Schmidt from the prison and gave him a job in weapons research, as one does with captured German scientists. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Finally, Smith explains how Sharp betrayed General Glory and framed him, all in an ill-fated attempt to steal the General's best girl. Alright, so I'll take it from there. With that, Schmidt dies, cursing General Glory to the end. And Ernie is understandably shaken by the claims of Sharp's betrayal. And he storms out to confront Sharp in person. Now, Sharp ends up confessing to Ernie that he framed General Glory back in World War II in hopes of winning the love of Louise Lippincott, General Glory's girlfriend. But Louise never stopped loving General Glory and eventually died of a broken heart. With his dark secret discovered, Sharp attempts to kill Ernie by shooting him. But Guy Gardner uses his power ring to save Ernie. The JLI overhears Sharp's confession, and he is in serious trouble. We're then treated to another Golden Age General Glory story by Joe Mason and Fred Hoover. This time it's the, quote, the last General Glory story. So we pick up from the previous 1940s Golden Age tale. 
General Glory is on a helicopter in the Arctic preparing for a special mission. Newkirk Sharp injects General Glory with a supposed medicine to protect him, but it's actually a massive sedative. Sharp explains to Louise that General Glory was attacking a POW camp and had murdered American soldiers. Now, that's something we as the reader know is not true because Sharp's actually the bad guy here. Uh, The unconscious general is then taken into custody by the CBI agents and locked away where they perform all kinds of medical experiments on him. They reverse his transformation, returning him to the ordinary Joe Jones, and then test experimental mind-erasing techniques on him. So Joe is left as a blank slate, you know, wandering the streets as World War II ends. It's really, really sad. Uh, Then back in the present, General Glory's name is finally cleared, and he's looking towards the future. Guy Gardner invites General Glory to join the Justice League, and Martian Manhunter is not happy with Guy for exceeding his authority. But then, Orion and Light Ray suddenly resign from the Justice League, leaving the team short in members. So, in addition to General Glory being recruited, Maxwell Lord also recruits Shiloh Norman, the new Mr. Miracle, uh, against Scott Free's wishes. The story ends with Guy Gardner calling the DC Comics office, demanding Andy Helfer hire cartoonist Joe Mason as the penciler for the Justice League comic book adventures. Andy Helfer hangs up on Guy Gardner, which he doesn't really take very well. Which then leads us into our second story. Tell you what, could you pronounce the name of this story for me again? Kittrigarks. Thank you. I appreciate that, guys. (laughs) You have no idea. So here's a quick recap of this totally insane, totally insane story by Kyle Baker. So uh, Guy Gardner's phone call with Andy Helfer springboards into this whole thing, right? It's it's a 15-page backup written and illustrated by Kyle Baker. In fact, there's this full-page disclosure. It's a giant full-page disclosure. It says, the following story is offered without editorial comment by Kyle Baker, who is solely responsible for any and all the libelous depictions contained therein. And then there's some more gags on the page, too. It's really funny. So in this story, Andy Helfer is attempting to rein in the creativity of his writers, Keith Giffen and J.M.D. Mateus. Kyle Baker's uh, his unique art is freaking hilarious here, guys. Especially his wild representation of Keith Giffen, uh, which, it's, you know, you can totally see it, right? And then the representation of J.M.D. Mateus, he, he's, and I'll probably mispronounce this too, but he's drawn as Mayor Baba, which is the, uh, which is the Indian spiritual master that J.M.D. Mateus <laughs> follows. So about this time, uh, Guy Gardner storms in the D.C. office offices with Joe Mason in tow. And Guy demands that Joe Mason become the new artist on the Justice League comic book. Guy insists that Joe Mason is better than any other artist they have. Andy Helfer hires Joe Mason, and then they release their current artist, Linda Medley, who quite literally releases her from her shackles of work. Now, she's devastated, though, being fired, even though the comic artists are described as getting no money and no respect. Now, about this time, New York City is attacked by an enormous creature called... Oh, geez. Here, uh, it's One more time. Kittrigarks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, again, someone just leaned on a keyboard there. So the comic book creators point out that uh, the attack makes no sense. So as Guy Gardner's out there fighting him, they're critiquing it. They say the character displays no motivation. So regardless, Guy battles this thing for five pages. And in the end, Guy destroys the creature. But again, the comic creators are hilariously criticizing the battle like overly nerdy fanboys. It's great. So uh, once all that's completed, you get to the real next issue advertisement. And it says, next issue, Jean Jones, Kilowog, Nort. It's fun. It's amazing. It's outrageous. It's only a dollar. It's night on the town. Oof. All right. So that is a lot, lot, lot to take in. So first off, uh, Captain Entropy, what'd you think? Did you enjoy it? I love this issue. In fact, this is a lot like some comedy movies I've seen where the more often I read the issue, the more I enjoyed it. So mm. thank you for that too, Shaq. That does happen with podcast preparation. You, you, you're reading it more and more. The jokes just sort of seep in and become part of you. Yep. 
absolutely. That's what happened here. All right. So, Captain, tell me a couple things that you liked about the issue. Well, there were so many things I liked about the issue, Shaq. Like, one of the things I liked is that it has two of my three favorite JLI members, Mr. Miracle and the Martian Manhunter. Mm. The other one, of course, is Batman. See, I like heroes who are just trying to be regular guys like Mr. Miracle. And I like straight men leading a team of clowns because when they finally crack a joke, it's double funny. Yeah. Wait, wait. I, ju- I just told you my three favorite JLI members, and that isn't even a segment anymore. Pretty slick, huh? Yeah, I, I, I'm impressed. I caught that. I saw that coming a mile away. <laughs> You're not the first one to try that. So well done. Well played. Yes. <laughs> it has to be done differently every time so you don't catch it. Would you like to do the monitor log or, or whatever I used to call it where we go through every single comic that was published this month as well? <laughs> uh, no, I am not prepared for that. Thank you. <laughs> I, I did not do all of the extra credit homework. <laughs> So, all right. So the big thing here is, of course, this is the anniversary issue and it's the conclusion of General Glory Saga. So one of the reasons you landed this gig was I did what I call a fishing expedition where I went out and I told people, I'm like, hey, I'm looking for people that like General Glory. I want to hear your thoughts. And really what I was doing was looking for guests for these episodes. And you were foolish enough to respond. And so you landed this gig. So tell me, what do you like about General Glory or the characters in this issue? Well, okay, Shag, everyone knows you're, you're a marketing guy. That was your major in college. And you know how to stay on brand. (laughs) So for the Glory Bound Saga, you made a point of getting General Glory fans as guests so we could find our joy, right? Yep. All right. So I love General Glory for all the reasons your other guests have said. I think they all list good reasons. Chris Lewis, uh, in particular, sticks out in my mind as a guy who analyzed it well. But, But I will add these also. So Captain America is my favorite superhero, but he represents the American dream, not like the family in your own home version of the American green, but all the ideals America was founded on, the ones that it's still working to live up to. Consequently, Cap is just about perfect. But when people do a pastiche of Cap, such as General Glory, they usually make him a little more like America actually is. Mm -hmm. So as we see in this issue, General Glory is still generous and brave and powerful, pretty wonderful overall. John Jones even mentions uh, how impressed with him he is at one point. And so as a patriot, I appreciate the implied compliment there. But, you know, we've had five issues now of seeing him. He's also a little arrogant. He's way overconfident. Uh, I mean, especially somebody who falls out of the sky and thinks he's perfectly fine. That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. I, if you know a guy, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So he has no qualms about meddling in other people's business. He jumps to conclusions without all the facts. So on behalf of this great nation, I will own all those flaws and laugh at them. We're still a work <laughs> in progress. So That is very appropriate. That is very profound. I like that. I hadn't thought about the flaws uh, or, or maybe not flaws, but our different traits coming out through the character in the past each. Because, I mean, Giffen and Dimatteis, they know what they're doing. So you're probably right. None of that was probably by accident. Wow. Yeah, some of the things that are fun, too, uh, and this doesn't go into the deep philosophy of it, but just fun things about General Glory. I love, you know, he's got those Golden Age dialogue style, right? Or maybe even Silver Age dialogue style. But either way, and Ernie calls him on it, you know, because General Glory will just say whatever's happening. You know, Ernie's like, you can't stop talking to yourself, can you? You're forever explaining why things were happening as if everyone else was too stupid to figure it out for themselves, which is absolutely describes, you know, those types of comics. So uh, I, I thought that was a fun aspect that they included with General Glory. Yeah, and, and honestly, I don't mind the expository dialogue so much. I think I'm just kind of conditioned to it. But when you call it out like that, it just, it gives you a, a new laugh that, that was, you know, the joke was there all the time, but it takes Ernie the Battling Boy to draw it out. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have caught it on my own if they hadn't put that in there. So there are other things I liked in this issue too, of course. I was genuinely impressed by the number of inspirational and awesome things that General Glory and the Leaguers say and
they do in this one. I mean, they're still funny, but they come out looking really heroic, I think. So, for example, uh, mm-hmm. The Martian Manhunter on page two, page two starts off with, well, he's not getting away with attacking a U.S. military installation, referring to, to Captain Schmidt and the evil eye. So, first off, I want to say to John Jones, thank you. We didn't know you cared, but we're flattered. Aww. Second, immigrants make the best patriots. Third, I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think General Glory and Ernie are a positive influence on John. So, but some there are some other examples of these guys acting like they should have triumphant music as part of the score behind them. So, on page four, Guy Gardner, Fire, and the New Gods immediately roll out to do battle with the Eye, and Beetle goes in for another volley, flying the uh, the J- JLA shuttle at the Evil Eye. So, the fact that the Eye has a swastika on it means there's no time wasted figuring out whether it's a bad guy or not. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and I like, I'm glad you pointed out Blue Beetle because you know, normally he just has to sit in the ship, right? And he doesn't get to do much. So here, yeah, he is totally like... <laughs> You know, blasting away. Uh, in your recap, when you put the uh, the Maverick comment, like, I've had highway to the danger zone. Like, every time I re- read the issue, it's in my head now as Beetle's flying around. So, yeah, I, I just, I'm really glad they gave Beetle something to do and showed the shuttle as, you know, potentially being a force for uh, to be involved in the battle. Yeah, and uh, even Guy Gardner praises Beetle for how aggressively he's fighting the evil eye. Yeah! It's, it's honestly not super effective, but Beetle's still impressive. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He's, he's really getting into it. Yeah. So there's some other great heroic moments in there. On page six, Ernie and General Glory team up again. And there's stars in the background and, you know, they're, they're making it look like a, a glorious scene. I got I to gotta talk about that real quick. So I, 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 if I interrupted you, uh, okay, you know, actually, I don't care if I did. But so, yeah, Ernie and the General running together. It's It's got the big yellow exploding speed lines. It's got the blue stars. It's very Jack Kirby. You know, the hands are out in the foreground, the feet in the back. I mean, it looks great. They're they're smiling they're both ready to go but the dialogue in that panel is like a little contrary like you know let's do it but when we're done trader i'm gonna see you hanging from the highest tree there is i mean that's what ernie's saying to the captain that he is gonna execute him is what he's saying basically so that the dialogue kind of threw me off with that super exciting panel yeah it's very qualified in the dialogue right like okay i'll do this because it's the right thing to do but i i'm not committed to working with you but if you just look at the panel it's like they're back in World War II and there's there's no limits. They are 100%, you know, Ernie is 100% in on working with General Glory. And you could also see it as, and we, we brought this up in previous episodes now, is is Ernie is artistically rendered to look like Jack Kirby. So you could almost interpret this as Jack Kirby going into battle with Captain America, you know, in, in his own way. And that just looks great. Yeah. And as you point out, drawn in a Jack Kirby-esque style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. None of, the, none of that's by accident. Yep. Uh, other moments on page eight, uh, you see ice, like blasting the evil eye and it's you know she's doing everything she can to bring it down and just covering the bottom half of this thing in ice and it just it reminded me of Scotty in Star Trek saying you know giving her all she's got <laughs> sure sure so the so the next page you've got the the kapow moment after Orion has the great scene of blasting it the eye crashes into the ground at this unnamed military installation and probably causes all kinds of damage but that's great for defense contractors like me <laughs> I got to talk about that scene before you move on, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so a couple different things. So first off, it's really artistically rendered awesome. I mean, Linda Medley drew the hell out of this page, right? It's at a great, cool angle. Like, you know, the ground is at an angle, so that adds some excitement to it. It's like, super awesome in the crash. I, it does look reminiscent of something, and I can't put my finger on it. At first, I thought it maybe was the cover of Action Comics number one with ice running at the camera, but that's not it. 
I don't know. It, it, I'll put this page on the gallery, folks. If anybody can put their finger on it, uh, or even you, Captain Entropy, I just it looks familiar. Like the setup is like maybe an homage or something. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I I, I see what you're saying there, and I think Ice, especially mm-hmm. the way she's running from it, it, it yep. it's probably a scene from some other you know epic world-ending crossover. That's what I'm thinking. Or Golden Age side of thing is what I'm thinking. But so uh, Orion takes out the evil eye, right? So a couple different things. First of all, it seems like Orion could have done this. Like five pages ago. Like, <laughs> I don't know that he had to wait for ice to do anything. The guy is at such a power level. It seems like he could have just took it out right away, but that's fine. You know, uh, it's, it's a comic. We're here for fun, right? But also for dramatic and plot purposes, it does feel like maybe General Glory and Ernie should have been the ones to take out like the, you know, the final blow. Cause that, that should have seemed like it would have built to them being the ones to finally take it down. But you know, it is what it is, but that did strike out, strike me as uh, odd. Yeah. I'm going to no prize that. So or at least part of it, so right. I think, I think ice had to immobilize it and get it to where it couldn't move and couldn't shoot before Orion could set up his shot and do so without getting blasted by the evil eye. And, and, and that's my my excuse for, for why it was timed the way it was and why it's it's really a great teamwork move. As far as, as General Glory and Ernie, the thing that comes to mind when you point that out is, I can't explain how they ever beat Schmidt. <laughs> they don't have the power level to beat this guy. Unless this was like his his best weapon that he never got to employ against them and he was he was never quite this good during the war. I don't know how they kept defeating him. Well, it could have been like, they could have done this like a Captain America style where, I don't know, Guy Gardner throws General Glory at the eye. The general yanks out the wires or he climbs inside of it and takes it out from the inside. There's all kinds of, you know, it's comics. You can say whatever you want. So it, it, it's the same as why could Captain America beat, you know, all of the Red Skulls, massive machines in World War II. It's the same concept. But yeah. regardless, it's still a great looking page. Yep, absolutely. And then on page 13, this uh, this is uh, the last one of my heroic moments I'm listening General Glory asked the skipper, John, to look after Ernie as Ernie goes after Jay Newkirk Sharp. And even John is impressed with him. So it's uh, he's really like guiding the reader along or, and, and, and letting him know just uh, how impressive this is, or maybe speaking for the reader a little bit. So I really appreciated that moment. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a whole thing going on there that I liked that where both Marsh Manhunter and Ernie and eventually General Glory keep insisting that he has to stay in his cell because he's been arrested. So it, it's nice to see someone really committed to upholding the law. You know, it, it really, it's nice. Uh, Ernie had another great line. Too. Ernie had some really great lines in this one. Uh, you can't just run off and fight every supervillain who happens to come flying in in a motorized eye. Uh, <laughs> some good yeah. bits. I, I think that line seems much more normal in their world than it does in ours. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you know, General Glory gets to, uh, to call Schmidt a ratsy, which is like my favorite insult to Nazis. That was awesome to see that. So, you know, I actually Googled and tried to find if like people ever said Ratsy in World War II. I mm. couldn't find any evidence that they ever did outside of comics. If there's any 90-something-year-old listener to the podcast who can remember and act as like a first-person source and, and can tell us whether or not people said that in daily conversation in 1942, I would appreciate it. You know, if Roy Thomas invented it for All-Star Squadron, I'll still be okay with it. Oh, absolutely. Or the Invaders. I bet it was in the Invaders. Too. Oh, yeah, probably. Probably. Let me talk about some of the other character beats that were in here. When you go back to, to page two, you see Smith being offended that General Glory thinks Hitler caused more death and pain than he did as the evil eye, which is just crazy. I mean, if, if you're offended that somebody thought Hitler was more evil than you, you're 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 way over on one end of the spectrum there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So John's astonishment throughout this is is terrific. He 
he has to say who is he three different times, talking about the, the Captain Smith and the evil eye. Right, because uh, General Glory and Ernie are having a conversation about, oh my gosh, he's back, he's back, without saying who it is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of those expository conversations, style conversations, except that they're not expositing who this actually is. To, to, right. So John Jones is pretty upset. Then he calls out the whole Ratsy thing, just like mm-hmm. you're talking about, which calling it out makes it even funnier. And then, so I love General Glory relishing the arrival of the JL, JLA shuttle. Like, that's going to turn the tide of the battle. And mm-hmm. he's, just, he's super excited about it. Um, <laughs> but some, some other comedy, you've got page five, Light Ray is being confused by idiom. He, he just, what, what do his sleeves have to do with it? Oh, right. What, what other trick does he have of his sleeves? Right, right. Exactly. So page eight. So right before the Kapow moment, when Orion makes that famous blast, he says, I'm sorry, fire, I think. Said, Actually, I, th- I think it's ice because ice is just frozen the bottom of the shuttle. Nope, you're and, right. It is and ice. Then, and then ice yells out, Orion, quickly, before he... Yes, you're right. Yeah, and Orion responds, don't order me, woman. I am a warrior born and I know what is expected of me. And then he blasts it with the great sound effect of scoom. And I just... <laughs> There, there hasn't been a lot of characterization, and you and your guests have talked about it before. There hasn't been a lot of characterization or even featuring of, of Orion and Light Ray, the new gods that are that are on the team right now. And I think probably the best characterization of either one of them is in this book, right? Before, you know, right as they're leaving, which is funny to me. Yeah, I think you're right. We're going to talk a little more about them once we get through the general glory part of the story. We're going to talk about that. I think a little bit more. Yeah, and, and so understood. One more example of that characterization is a couple pages later when uh, John asks Orion, couldn't you have used just a little more restraint? And Orion answers kind of what's in the reader's head. He says, this is war. He is the enemy. I am Orion. And I think it's a great point. It's like, what did you expect, Marshall? Yeah. Like, know your people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. And then the, the last one I'll, I'll point out uh, specifically is General Glory on page 13 as, as he's taking John's praise and, and kind of deflecting it in his humble, not so humble way, but he calls John an average American. He says, I'm just an average American like you. And I don't think I caught that the first time. But like you said, when you're reading these multiple times, you realize he's calling a man from Mars an average American. That's funny to me. I did not even catch it until I saw it in your notes. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's very clever. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple other things I was going to point out real quick. So as we get the very, just right all the way back in the beginning, going all the way back to the very first page, uh, the, the very first line of the book is, at last, the concluding chapter of the seemingly endless saga of General Glory. Well, I, I know some readers and some listeners of this podcast would absolutely agree with that sentiment, <laughs> the seemingly endless part. That strikes me funny, too, because it's almost like the people who create this comic are such fanboys that they can anticipate the fanboy complaints even before they hear them. Well, I, by this point, if it's six issues, I would say they've gotten letters in from at least the first two parts. So, yeah, but yeah, they're, they're, they're picking up on what's going on, I think, yeah. Yeah, but are they saying it's, I mean, are they saying it's endless at, you know, two issues in? I don't think so. Yeah, you're probably right. So, okay. Fair enough. So, uh, this thing's also, you know, it's celebrating 50 issues, which is great. And they give thanks to past artists. Um, They only refer to him by first name, but they thank Kevin McGuire, Terry Austin, Al Gordon, Ty Templeton, Joe Rubenstein, Mike McCone, and Adam Hughes, all uh, prolific uh, pencilers and inkers on the series. And I thought it was a little strange because there's a few people who did not get thanked. 
Now, maybe because they weren't on the on the book long enough, but like a couple, there were three that jumped out at me. They didn't thank Steve Lealoha, Bill Willingham, or Tom Artis, all of who have contributed multiple issues. Uh, but either way, uh, it was nice to see them give thanks to so many other people and say that they all helped make this book what it is. I didn't notice that. You're right. That's that's you know, kind of interesting because those were enjoyable issues. Yeah. So once the the secret is revealed, right, about General Glory and, and what Kirk, uh, new, new Kirk Sharp did to him, I mean, it's really sad. You know, it's like, so Schmidt was working for the U.S. government for like a long time. That's super disturbing. And and the General Glory's mind erasing was so brutal and sad. Yeah. So I'm not as disturbed as you about Schmidt working for the U.S. government for a long time. Because honestly, what else? I mean, what else are you going to do with the guy? You can lock him in prison and waste his brain power. And you know, after World War II, we did have Operation Paperclip where we scooped up a bunch of German scientists. In fact, some of them made a point of moving west so they could be captured by the Americans. Americans rather than by the Soviets. So there's some historical parallel to this going on. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's true. I mean, absolutely. It's different world, man. Um, so, all right. So they make a big deal about the anti-glory bomb that Schmidt drops. And like one panel later, it's over. It's just a concussive blast. I I guess I was scratching my head a bit. Again, once you reread these things so many times, thinking like that felt like that was supposed to be a big thing, but it doesn't really do anything other than an explosion. I don't I kept waiting for like to find out that the anti-glory bomb infected him and something's going to happen five pages later. But uh, I don't know. I, mean, I, I was probably expecting too much. Well, yeah, I think we're just, I, I had the same thought you did, but I, I think we're just giving Smith too much credit. <laughs> uh, some of the art stuff. So uh, Linda Medley, you know, I have sung her praises throughout most of these episodes. And once again, she did a great job. There is some great work in this issue. There's some great figure work. There's some great expressions. Really loved her. Um, you know, like, I'll just pick one out of the blue. On page five, you know, uh, there's a great upshot of Schmidt as, he, as he's about to press the button to launch that anti-glory bomb. It's just phenomenal. The glee in his face, the evilness, the, the lighting from below. You know, e- even though some of that's done with coloring, it's clearly done with the inks as well. I mean, it's just, she did such a great job in this issue. She really did. I'll, I'll jump in and just say there's another another gleeful shot on, on page three, a couple pages prior where you see uh, Guy Gardner heading into battle and, and he just, he looks like he's wanted to, to fight the evil eye his whole life. Oh yeah. I mean, he's probably thrilled to, to fight Nazis. That's got to be like a lifelong dream. And I love that his bowl haircut is like fl- flapping up in the air <laughs> and it looks great. I love it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So go forward one page and here's some things I've noticed Linda Medley has done in the art in the background, which is great. So on page four, the last panel, uh, you know, it's Blue Beetle and it's ice and they're flying the, the shuttle and Beetle's been doing some really crazy maneuvers with the shuttle. In fact, the page they have panel before Shiloh's like thinking Blue Beetle's trying to kill him with the way he's flying. But if you look, Liberty the dog is in the background and you can tell he's starting to get airsick. His eyes are closed. He's got little bubbles along above his head. Linda Medley snuck that in where the dog is actually getting airsick from the way Blue Beetle's flying. I just thought that was a cute little touch. It was really nice that she puts that kind of stuff in the art. Wow. You have, you have really good attention to detail, Shaq. I totally missed that. I can see if I can get an age waiver for you to come into the military if you like. I mean, we, <laughs> we like attention to detail. <laughs> I uh, I appreciate the compliment, but I will put it all down to panel by panel mode uh, okay. is, is what, what really allows me to see that level of detail. Okay. So uh, a couple of issues now, I've been sort of speculating, all right, so if General Glory is running around in World War II, you know, where's the JSA in all this? You know, where's, where's that connection? Well, we finally get it. On page 11, Schmidt's telling the story. Now, to be fair, Schmidt's an unreliable narrator, but whatever. Uh, Schmidt's telling the story, and we actually see a panel. It's all kind of in one color, but we see General Glory running into battle, and behind him is Jay Garrick the Flash, 
and the Spectre. And then a couple of members of All-Star Squadron receive Liberty Bell, and who I'm pretty sure is Johnny Quick. It's a little hard to tell. But uh, so we actually get to see General Glory running into action with our favorite like All-Star Squadron and JSA members. That was that was such a great moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. And he and it's it's neat because he does make that connection, uh, Smith does, and he says all the verdant American superheroes. So you realize, okay, General Glory doesn't exist in his own universe. He's he's part of uh, you know the larger DC you know, tremendous lore of World War II. Yeah, and, and along those lines, I'm really hoping we eventually do see an adventure, a classic one of General Glory with Beefeater. I really hope we get to see that at some point. And I'm sure Tim Price is you know biting his nails trying to not tell me, but uh, I, I hope we get to see it. <laughs> So here's something, as I was re- like right, literally right before we recorded, I realized something that I had never noticed before. And, it's, and, and I'm probably seeing something that's not there. But, you know, so General Glory, if you find any, any panel with General Glory where you can see his costume pretty well, he has got this golden feather pattern right across his shoulders. And I realized today that it's kind of reminiscent of Nightwing's disco costume. Yep. Because Nightwing has a yellow sort of a V that comes down across his shoulders and, you know, into his chest. And what that's supposed to represent is supposed to represent feathers because of a robin. But I just, that struck me. I don't know if anyone else has ever saw that before or thought that. But yeah, I, it's kind of got a Nightwing vibe going. Now, to be fair, General Glory, even though he's retroactive to the 40s, he was created after Nightwing. So it might be a, a call forward, you know, whatever. But I just, I don't know, that stood out to me in the art. Yeah. So I have a question for you about that. Now that you've, now that you've called it out, do you think that the feathers are part of a print or do you think that that they're attached in a way and that they, they actually move as he moves? Oh, because yeah, I mean, you know, Captain America's a good example like where it's supposed to be like chain mail maybe or something, but sometimes they draw them as scales and it looks like the scales are flapping as he runs. So, um, I'm gonna, you know what? Uh, I'm gonna go with because I want them to be. I'm going to say the feathers are loose and they could flap as he runs. Yeah, I think so too. Because there are just a couple panels where where it looks to me like the, the like the feathers, particularly on his shoulders, are moving a little bit. So that that's my my headcanon also. I'm going with it. I'm going with it. Now I, you got to you can't help but you got to give credit to Paris Collins and Dave Elliott for the Golden Age story that's in here. It is awesome. I, I love this stuff. And, and at first, my gut reaction was like, "Wow, this really evokes Golden Age stuff." But more I think about it, I feel like it actually evokes early Silver Age stuff that's referencing the Golden Age. I know that's a bit of a snake eating its own tail, but like if you think about the the, the Jack Kirby, Stanley, Captain America stories from the '60s, you know when he's in the Avengers, and they would tell a story about Captain America in World War. Too. That's what this feels like. I mean, it feels like a Marvel comic the way it's written. And it looks art, like a Marvel comic from that era. I absolutely yeah. agree. So while it's telling a Golden Age story, it feels like a Silver Age story looking back on the Golden Age. Again, I know that's kind of crazy, but that's what it feels like to me. But it's just pitch perfect. It's so awesome. It is. And I will say, probably the bravest thing I saw General Glory do in this issue was get into a helicopter in the Arctic in like 1945. I think helicopters had been around for like 25 minutes at this point and, and they were death traps so so i'm very impressed by that all right so let's let's get into this whole thing with the membership right uh, the membership turnover here because what happens in this issue orion and light ray they quit right and general glory is recruited to the team which i know a lot of the listeners of this show were not happy about and we'll see how that plays out over the next several issues folks but or general glory is recruited and so is shiloh the new mr miracle so for me it kind of came across really convenient that Orion and Light Ray just quit at that exact moment, right? And, and you pointed out they, they, they've never really done anything on the team. They've never really been characterized. They did more in this issue than they have in most times. So yeah, you're absolutely right there. 
And I started really thinking about this from like a, a comic book business perspective. Like why was Orion and Light Ray added to the team in the first place? Well, the gut instinct there is that they were added to the team maybe in hopes of boosting the sales of the New Gods comic that was on the shelves at the time. Maybe so. Uh, and that may work here because in, when this issue is on the shelves of Justice League, New Gods only has two issues left till it's canceled. So maybe it, what's happened here is they added them to the team, hoping it would boost New God sales. Didn't do anything. New Gods is getting canceled anyway. Let's move the characters out. That could be what that reasoning is. But then I found a flaw in my own logic, which is in this issue, they bring in Shiloh and Mr. Miracle to join the team, right? So by that same logic, you could say, oh, maybe they added Shiloh to help boost the Mr. Miracle sales. Well, Mr. Miracle's getting canceled in one month. So both New Gods and Mr. Miracle both canceled at that time. So maybe they're just looking to give Shiloh a home at the end before it's canceled. I'm not really sure. I don't know. You got any thoughts on this? Well, it's easier to criticize a theory than it is to come up with one. And it's always fun to criticize you, Shag. So <laughs> I will say I think you're you're probably right. I think it was a combination of business and creative decisions, right? So yeah, there there was less motivation to keep Orion and Light Ray in if, if it wasn't going to be boosting the sales of the new, new Guys comic. And since they weren't making good use of them anyway, why not clear them out and, and make room for more characters, right? Rather than just stop using them for a year like say they were Aquaman or something and Ouch. you know and and call attention to the fact that you know or have fanboys call attention to the fact that they haven't seen Orion and Light Ray in a while will actually exit them off the stage and and I have to say to jump to interrupt myself and say that Orion has a really good moment I think when he says that he has learned to respect Martian Manhunter I thought that was that was a neat point and a, and a good character moment for him but yeah regarding Shiloh I I think maybe it was just a creative motivated decision and they wanted to have a new hero in there and and you know have this new dynamic of like an 18 year old kid like 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 say firestorm you know yeah yeah. having somebody from that perspective and 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 he adds diversity to the team which is which is you know mostly white and green at this point I like the green part. You know, and that's an interesting thing is, you know, Shiloh, believe it or not, I had I did some research to make sure I'm right here, is only the third black Justice League America member ever at this oh, point. Wow. Yeah. So John John Stewart showed up, you know, for a couple issues. He, he hadn't joined really officially at this point. He'd just been in a few issues of JLA. So I don't even know if you can count him or not. Some people would no, say you would. We, we um, have to count him because he was on the Justice League cartoon. We have to. Right. But but but, but here's where I'm going, though. I mean, like, he, he really only appeared in a couple issues of Justice League America. So I I kind of prefer to give credit to Vixen as being the first real African-American Just League member because she was really part of the team. I mean, she yeah. was active for a long time. So I, wh- wh- whichever way, uh, Shiloh is either the second or third, however you want to count it. He's only the second or third Just League member ever. And he's the first black Justice League member of the Just League International era. So, I mean, it's it, it was really, I'm glad that they, they made this move. I hope they use him effectively. We'll find out what happens in the next 10 issues or so. But uh, yeah, I was really surprised when I thought back on that. And also, uh, I I kind of made some comments earlier, like, why is Shiloh showing up so much early in the General Glory story? He wasn't contributing. Why is he here? Why are we focusing on him? It was kind of uh, like Chekhov's gun. It was Chekhov's Shiloh. You know, and so finally, here we are in the final act. The gun's finally fired. Shiloh joins the team. Okay. So now it makes sense why Shiloh's appearances were in the General Glory story. Yeah, I I hope he continues and and that they feature him too. I I think he's an interesting character. What I don't think is interesting is the father-son dynamic of you need to 
to, you know, Scott Free is saying you need to pay attention, train and observe. Shiloh is saying you need to let me do things. It's the only way I'm going to learn. I'm not saying that's not, that isn't realistic. It is realistic. It's just, it gets old in the comic, just like it gets in real life. Mm, okay. Well, I guess it's going to depend if Scott stays around um, yeah. as we go. So again, we'll find out. I Sadly, I don't remember Shiloh doing a lot in the Justice League comics. So I'm worried it's going to be like Orion and Light Ray where he's on the team, but doesn't do much. I hope I'm wrong, but I guess we'll find out. And I do wonder if the intention when they started running, uh, writing the General Glory saga was if it was always intended for General Glory to join the team or just after six issues of having so much fun, they're like, you know what? Let's put him on the team. I mean, it, it may have been an organic thing. I, I don't really know. I guess we should ask JMT Mateus at some point. Yeah, that's a great idea. Hon- honestly, I like the Mr. Miracle costume colors, whichever version it is. Mm. Scott's or Shiloh's. So I want him around just for visual interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, I love at the end, uh, Guy Gardner on the phone with Andy Helfer. You know, that, that was so meta and so funny. And we've talked about the fact that Linda Medley was really, the fans were very harsh towards her, especially because, you know, they, they, they even called out her being female and things like that. So I'm glad they took a moment to call that out in the comics. You know, Guy Gardner is on the phone complaining to Andy Helfer saying that one of their, their, one of their artists is a girl, you know, and how can a babe draw a comic, you know, superhero comics. So I like that they took the time to call that out. That, that made me happy. Yeah. And they had, the guy they had voiced that is the guy that we all love to hit, hate, right? I mean, it's it's Guy. So if this is a, a strong opinion that Guy is voicing and it's something you've said, maybe you need to second guess your, your thinking. Yeah. Wow. Good point. That's a real good point. Hmm. All right. So now we're going to move into the second story because uh, it, it, it's a, there's a transition here. So Guy Gardner is on the phone with Andy Helfer. Andy Helfer hangs up on him. And this is all in the, the first half, drawn by Linda Medley. And so Guy's ticked off. Andy Helfer hung up on him and he's like, oh, uh, they're, you know, he's, he's, he's threatening he's going to go see Andy Helfer. So the last panel is a shot of the DC building, which is, of course, uh, it shows the address right across the top, 666, because they were on, I think it's 666 Fifth Avenue, if I remember correctly. So that that's kind of a funny bit. Yes, I agree. It's funny that they're they're really attacking themselves and the industry. And they it's almost like a sign saying, you know, the comics industry is evil. Right. I mean, the people working in the DC building had to recognize that every day. You know, the yes. address is just too funny. Yes. So this Kyle Baker story, holy crap. This thing is off the rails, insane, hilarious. I don't think I appreciated it when I read it originally because the art is so crazy. I probably didn't like it. I, I hadn't learned to appreciate kind of the independent comic book art style. I didn't get all the meta jokes back then. Now I laughed hysterically. Every stupid panel in this thing, the disclaimers hysterical. Yeah, did some Somebody get paid for that page? I'm curious. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, the way they said it is that com- commercial consideration for Mr. Baker has been bypassed in lieu of a shameless plug for why I hate Saturn. Yes. So uh, maybe he didn't get paid. I don't know. But oh my gosh. So the the depiction of Keith Giffen and J.M. DMTS. Keith Giffen is wild and crazy eyed and he's got a crazy overbite and he's got a crazy beard and hair. I mean, as crazy as he looks, you look at it and you're like, yeah, okay, that is Keith Giffen. I get it. And then J.M. Okay. DMTS, he didn't even try and draw him. He simply drew, again, I'm going to say the name wrong, uh, Meher Baba, which is, again, the, the Indian spiritual master that J.M. DMTS follows. I mean, that's, that is his spiritual leader, uh, or one of them. And so it's, it, it specifically drew them like the spiritual leader. And then constantly, like most of J.M. DMTS' comments are about you know, spiritual thoughts and stuff like that, which is, I mean, Kyle Baker was just 
was vicious and hilarious on everyone in this thing. I, did you like? I, is it just? I mean, I don't know. Did I like this more? I, you got to help me out here. No, I, I loved it too for all the same reasons. And and I got to say, in, in in your defense, which it's pain, it pains me to defend you. <laughs> I don't know how to say Mayor Baba either. I would say it the same way you did. So and in I loved especially all the JMD Mateus like spiritual guru Yoda talk that that he has going on in here. And I particularly want to point out the second page of the story. So Andy says, I'm telling you, it's just not logical. People don't just come back from the dead. And and D. Mateus says, sure they do. It's in the Upanishads. I mean, that is that is the best excuse I've ever heard for, for how easy it is to undo death in the comics. <laughs> They, they capture both of them really good. Like, because, you know, they're, they're Andy Helfer is arguing with Keith Giffen, right? And Helfer says, because it's not realistic. That's why. And Keith Giffen says, it's a comic book. Who expects realism from a comic book for crying out loud? People don't expect realism in comics. People read comics for books for fantasy. And, like, I can hear Keith Giffen saying those things, like, in anger. I can be, I can hear him saying, no, you're stupid. You're wrong. You know, it's because yeah. he's, he's very to the point, you know? Oh, my gosh. I mean, this thing is, is so funny. Guys, you got to read it. You really do. Uh, I love how Guy Gardner comes in. The way he's drawn half the time, he almost looks like a Muppet, like Sam the Eagle to me. <laughs> like when he's got his mouth shut, he looks like Sam the Eagle. Yes. Because uh, he's, he's kind of got the same hair and the mouth and all that. Yep. And they draw his nose basically as a beak. So yeah, it did, I didn't see that, but it totally works. And then uh, they keep arguing about artists. You know, Guy wants him to take in Joe Mason from uh, the original Golden Age stuff. And they're saying, no, 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 we want someone who draws realistic. And they get this huge argument about what is a realistic comic book. And finally, they... they they push him and push him, and Helfer says, you're going to make me say it, aren't you? And he yells, we want someone who draws like Kevin used to. And they're talking about Kevin McGuire. I just bust out laughing at that, because it does seem like, you know, regardless of the insane amount of talent that's been on this book, I mean, there is, they have been ludicrously gifted with amazing artists on this book. And, uh, but Kevin is still the gold standard. He always is. Yeah, even up against Adam Hughes, and I had to say, like, I didn't appreciate how good Adam Hughes was early in his career, until you went through these comics on this podcast and then it's like man he is just as expressive as Kevin Maguire but I was like everybody else I was like why is Kevin Maguire not still doing this book yeah Uh, and then poor Linda Medley I mean (laughs) she's she's this tiny 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 little woman I mean they draw her like a seven year old girl is what she looks like with giant black circles around her eyes she's holding a pencil that's almost as tall as her she's chained to the desk I mean it's funny it is hilarious but I felt so bad yeah, well, she's okay. So she's not chained. That's one of the points they make. Oh, like true. The, the, the you know the shackles are there, but she's not actually shackled because she's just like everybody else. She loves comics so much. They make them. They make the artists look like crazed addicts. And it, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's it well, and and you're kind of speaking to the fans a little bit at that point. So it, so it cuts a little close to home. But but I agree with you 100 percent about Linda Medley. I thought she looked like somebody you like a little girl you'd want to adopt and buy her comics and art supplies. She's adorable. (laughs) Yeah, there were some other great jokes in this book, especially back in the office. Right before Kittergarth shows up and you see the fight scene, you see Andy Helfer saying, it's it's time somebody told you it's a new age here in the business of illustrated fiction. Keith Giffen says, yeah, comics aren't just for kids anymore. And and Dimatteis jumps in with pow, biff. And... (laughs) 
that is th- those last two lines, uh, Giffen's line and DiMatteis's lines. That's pretty much the headline for every newspaper article, like mainstream news media article that ever covered any big comic story. And I just got t- so tired of seeing that in the 80s and the 90s. I really appreciate them calling it out. That's absolutely right. I hadn't thought about that. That is a very good point. And I want you to know I'm confident in my pronunciation of Kittrigarks, not because I have any justification for it, just because I know if I sound confident when I pronounce it, it'll, it'll, it'll sound more plausible. And I actually added Kittrigarks to my personal dictionary in Google Docs as we were writing our notes, just, just in case it comes up again. <laughs> you never know. He could reappear. He is Always, always be prepared. <laughs> exactly. So he is totally a 50s Marvel monster. He's not even really a DC monster. So the the name and the appearance of the dialogue all read like Jack Kirby 50s monster comics to me. And so I really appreciate that. I I loved the fight scene and the the Hemingway-esque Frank Miller style captions that are telling us Guy Gardner's dramatic thoughts during the uh, fight. They are like that. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear my ribs crack. My lungs are on fire. He's good. That's straight Batman from The Dark Knight Returns there. It really is. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so and then he and then Guy says the oath before he goes in for the killing blow on Kittergarks. And, and, you know, it's like this is a comedy story. The art style is comic. Everything is a parody of the entire comics industry. And I still felt my blood rise, you know, when he's giving the, the Green Lantern note. So that depiction of the artist is correct. These things have a lot of power over us. And, and you talked about the the way that the, the guys in the office are, are criticizing different story points or different ways of storytelling. And they sound like fanboys. Oh, yeah. And, and, and what's funny to me at the end is... Is even Joe Mason gets in on the act because you see his thought balloon where he starts complaining about the the lack of continuity and everything that's ridiculous about this story. And it's like it doesn't matter if they're fanboys from the 1980s or 1940s or today. We don't change. We still complain. Ah, oh, that's perfect. It's such a great way to cap it off. I mean, this is such a bonkers, crazy meta story that I love so much. Again, I don't know that I appreciated it back then, but. But now, like, every panel is just perfect. Kyle Baker did a gorgeous job with this thing. The art is super fun. The jokes are so biting and so hilarious. I think this thing's exceptional. Yeah, I agree. Now, now it's funny because it's years and years after it came out, but it makes me want to pick up the Kyle Baker story about uh, about Saturn. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, so now now that we're done, we're we're we're, we're at the end here. I got to go back to the general glory part of the story and ask you what I've asked everyone throughout this whole run, all six issues. So, what did you think of this general glory issue? And you could even address the story whole storyline since we're at the end. You know, because there's this there's a, a myth or a, or a general sense the general glory saga was not. Good amongst a lot of fans. So as we get to the conclusion here, was the General Glory saga worth it? Uh, was it good? Was it a pleasant surprise? Or did it stick out like, you know, maybe maybe it's not so great? What do you think? Well, I have a secret to reveal here, Shag. So mm-hmm. I didn't get the General Glory saga until later. I okay. first I first picked up General Glory in the issues following this because this was all during my freshman year at the Air Force Academy and we were kind of busy. So I would imagine. Yeah. So I discovered 
this saga with you. And, you know, I bought these comics and read them. And I have to tell you, maybe it's my 50-year-old eyes, but I, I loved every bit of it. And there have been, in, in JLA and JLE, there have been stories where I thought, okay, this is running a little long. To me, this wasn't one of them. I liked the whole story. I've already talked about how I like General Glory as a character. But, you know, I, I, I appreciated even the pacing of this I thought was great. I, I'm so thrilled to hear that. And unlike you, I came in having read this in real time back in the day. I didn't remember it very well. I just remembered the general sense that it wasn't great. And now reading it, and, and I've read this just like I would have back then. I read it month by month. I did not binge six issues at a time. I read it month by month. So I have been reading this story for six months now, and I love it. And I don't think it's too long. I don't know that I want much longer. I think six issues is perfect. You know, I enjoyed every minute of it. I thought the General Glory character was genuinely likable. You know, at the end, I, I kind of like that he joined the team because I feel like the amount of six issues of investment made it worth it. If he disappeared after six issues, it might make me kind of sad. Be like, well, you know, we put we spent six months focusing on this guy and now he's gone. Well, here we spent six months and he's part of the team now. So I, I genuinely love this saga. I think it was funny. It was endearing. There was a lot of wonderful callbacks. I really think this thing was a success. Now, one person did point out, and you sort of echoed it, that maybe it is different reading it uh, as, at a certain vintage of age compared to being, you know, I don't know how young I was when it first came out, you know, just, just shy of 20. So maybe that's part of it is the older older lifestyle. I don't know. But I think the whole General Glory saga is a massive success. I absolutely love it. And I highly recommend if you, Chris Franklin, have uh, <laughs> poor memories of the General Glory saga, give it another read. It's really a lot of fun. It really, really is. Yeah. And I, I have to think that Chris is going to to love the, the comics industry meta jokes that are laced throughout this because it, I don't think when we were in the middle of it, I, I don't think we had enough distance to see it all. And we didn't have the internet back then to to, to show us how ridiculous we are. And so so I, I really enjoyed that piece of it. And I love General Glory in the Justice League because I love the effect he had on Guy Gardner. He was yeah. just, he was such a good influence and he was kind of the opposite of Blue Beetle who was constantly pushing Guy's buttons and antagonizing him. If I had been John Jones, I would have been more frustrated with Beetle than I would have been with Guy because Guy kind of can't help it. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. I think they're both a pain in the butt if you're the leader, but uh, that's, that's it's fair. The, at least one is being true to himself, and one's trying to screw up and, and get on people's nerves, so that's fair. Yeah. All right, so, you know, the only thing left here is it's time for us to nominate the... Quahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and Captain Entropy will pick one moment, and only that one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Captain Entropy, you are the guest, which has been unfortunate for me, but whatever. Uh, you get to nominate your award pick first. What do you got? Well, so I kind of already telegraphed this, Shag. I, I talked before about how I like the straight man who is the leader of a bunch of crazies, and how when he makes a joke, it's, it's twice as funny as, mm -hmm. as when the crazies do it. If you go back to page 13, you see John... Jones talking to Light Ray and Orion and he's telling them both to, to stay here at the, the, the now heavily damaged military base prison keep an eye on things which is smart I mean if you think about it there's a bunch of holes in a prison people are going to try and escape till the prison authorities get this place secure again and Orion says I would rather be dancing across a battlefield spitting blood tearing limbs and John says maybe later after dinner <laughs> 
That is a great moment. And that after dinner line is the perfect button on that joke. It yes. really, really is. I, I laughed every time with that. Now, that is not the moment I picked. And I, I can't not pick the Kyle Baker story at the end. I mean, it's just too gut-busting funny. Especially the bit where the creators are arguing about, how, you know, when, when Giffen is laying out this plot he wants and Kyle and uh, Andy Helfer is arguing with him saying, you know, it's not realistic. They have this wonderful argument and the depictions, the art, the argument about what the comic book should be about. I just, I can't not go for that. I, I have to nominate that. So this is the point where we have to decide who wins. So, okay. I think you're doing Kirk in the Kobayashi Maru yourself here. Because we're supposed to pick a moment, and you've picked an entire short story. No, no, I'm just picking hilarious. like the first two pages, first oh. two or three pages. Okay, all right, yeah, I don't care. I still, I, I still think you've changed the rules here, but I, I, I respect it the same way I respect Kirk and the Kobayashi Maru. I, I will let you win this because I love this story too. <laughs> I will take it. You know, anytime someone compares me to Captain Kirk, I will take it. So uh, we, I, and, and I feel like it is my obligation to award it to Kyle Baker for that amazing story. So we're gonna, we're going to give it to Keith Giffen, Andy Helford, J.M. DiMatteis, and Kyle Baker for that amazingly funny moment uh, in that story. So congratulations to all of you for winning the coveted Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, Captain Enchby, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind hanging out here at the New York Embassy for just a little while. I'm kind of worried that other team members might just decide to quit. Or worse, Guy Gardner might actually start recruiting other heroes that he feels are qualified. Do you mind uh, keeping an eye on that for a bit? I'll absolutely stick around, even though I, I have to say, I would argue that, that Guy Gardner has done quite well selecting General Glory. It might be that recruiting is his true calling. But... but <laughs> But I'll be happy to stick around because I'm going to be like a fanboy at a convention with all these leaguers around. Maybe General Glory and I can swap war stories. I have to find out if there's beer in the fridge. There you go. Perfect. All right. And you know what? I bet General Glory would enjoy that. So uh, now don't worry, Captain. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the London Embassy for the 26th issue of Justice League Europe. Attention. Attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST! Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes, episode by episode, the greatest television series of all time, MASH! Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com Jocularity! Monthly, monthly, monthly. It's Action Film Face-Off. Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrick, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. Action Film Face-Off. Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face-Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets... Jason was a Navy SEAL! Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films. Some of them have Chuck Norris! 
technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet, but it could happen because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year. Our randomizer has spikes on it. We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our video dome arena. It also has spikes. It does not have spikes. <laughs> but we discuss the films and score them through six different rounds of criteria. I score Bond films very high. Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film face-off. Next episode, Jason fights a bear. <laughs> Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows. Pat Samson killed a man with a sword once. I can neither confirm nor deny that statement. But you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade. Or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off. Come see the blood fly! And that's Action Film Face-Off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see The Blood Fly. I just said that. And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number 26. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now folks, this guest is really easily manipulated. In fact, thanks to me and Rob, my partner over on the Who's Who podcast, this gentleman has purchased back issues of Claw the Unconquered, Phantom Stranger, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, the Will Payton Starman series, and the whole Loose Leaf Who's Who series. <laughs> we have totally controlled this guy's purchasing habits. He is under my control, which is, is fitting actually for this issue of JLE because it's all about mind control. So folks, please help me welcome to the show, JT, the Exterminator. Welcome to the London Embassy, JT. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for the invite on the show. I am so excited to have you here. Now, I got now people don't know, we've been talking off air for a little bit here, but I got to ask for the audience's sake, JT. So JT, the Exterminator, that's a, it's a very comic booky sort of catchphrase. You got to talk about this. Well, it's quite an interesting uh, secret origin. I, I'm an exterminator, Shag. I, I kill stuff for a living. <laughs> Very creative, JT. I'm impressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, a buddy of mine, we run our own pest control company here in Buffalo, New York, Freedom Force Pest Control. Oh, that's Uh, awesome. Yeah, our tagline uh, motto is your friendly neighborhood exterminators. So... um, Yeah, a little bit of my comic book geekdom has found its way into the company I run. So I got to ask Freedom Force, like, because it, we're geeks here, right? So we we, we, we mm-hmm. can see each other's brains, sort of. Like, I, I immediately go back to the old video game, Freedom Force. Mm-hmm. Is that where some of that's coming from? Probably uh, subconsciously. I was looking for something that had a, kind of a superhero feel. I do remember that game. There was also Freedom Force at Marvel, Mystique's team there with the government. Oh, yeah! 
that's right. In the eighties. So yeah, that was probably part of it. We had a couple of names prior to that, but I was on the fence with it. But but my business partner, he's like, no, that's it. That sounds awesome. So so we wouldn't go for damage control. Okay. <laughs> I didn't think of that one. <laughs> So, all right. So you've obviously been a longtime comic reader. You've got a lot of experience. You've done the cool thing of finding a way to meld your work life and your comic book passion, which is amazing. But why don't you tell us what is your origin with the JLI? Like, how did you find the book? Are, are, is, are you a longtime reader? Are you new to it? What's the story? So probably in my those good years between nine and 12, we had here in Buffalo a classic dirt mall called the Super Flea. <laughs> And this was probably, eh, probably early, early to, yeah, probably early nineties. Uh, there was a guy there that ran, you know, just had a bunch of comics piled up on one another. It was over near the homemade ashtrays and the hubcaps. And <laughs> he had the good classic bargain bins, you know, the 50 cents a book, five for a buck. Uh, a lot of my allowances and paper out money went right there. And that's where I met All-Star Squadron, Secret Origins, Wally West Flash, and Justice League International. Wow. Um, I was grabbing been almost complete runs at that point of all this just 80s DC uh, goodness. Love the hell out of them. Now, I already had who's who at this point, and I just was a sucker for team books in general. I, I The more characters that were in it, the better for me. Uh, and I had no one to talk to about any of this stuff because all my other friends were Marvel people. So ah. uh, I kind of got into DC on my own, and this particular place was that, yeah, I couldn't wait to get back there. I only would go, you know, every other weekend, maybe, and I would always come home with a bunch of it so when you found the justice league like what era did you land in uh so with with justice league international it was the earliest issues i remember pulling justice league one right out of there oh, the cover, wow okay yeah the the mcguire art for sure you know that this was at, at the same time that that simpsons were hugely popular and a mm-hmm. big influence on me and in you know my humor style and everything else and you could get vibes from that there in in justice league international but uh also huge huge favorite character of mine is blue beetle you mm. know who'd think the pest control guy would like the bug character but uh, <laughs> uh ted cord love him to this day still one of my all-time favorites and at the time uh you know dc used him a lot uh he was usually in pretty much every issue so yeah that was that was good that's awesome that's fantastic wow what a great find to pull out justice league number one that's amazing mm-hmm. which is sort yep. of apropos for the comic we're about to talk about yeah <laughs> that's true <laughs> so let's go ahead and do this so folks this is justice league europe number 26 from dc comics cover dated may 1991 on the shelves April 2nd, 1991. Not an April Fool's Day joke, but the day after. Cover price was $1 for Shining Quarters. Cover is by Bart Sears. Now, we just mentioned Justice League number one, so remember that as our guest, JT, describes the cover for Justice League Europe number 26. All right. Justice League Europe number 26 is a very familiar image. It's the same type of group shot that McGuire did for that first issue, but it's also Bart Sears drawing this. Bart Sears did the first issue of Justice League Europe, and this is almost like a, you know, what happened 10 seconds later type yes. of cover. Yes. Uh, we have the, you know, the current Justice League Europe here, you know, 26 issues later, the team members changed up a little bit, but they're in relatively the same uh, poses, except they all have little starros on their faces. Um <laughs> We got, instead of Animal Man and Wonder Woman, Silver Sorceress and Blue Jay, they're now, you know, parts of the team. Power Girl is in her original location, but she's got her modern costume on. 
oh, look, she's angry. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, and then what's really good about this cover, what I really like about this cover, you got Metamorpho front and center, just like you did in Justice League Europe number one. In Justice League Europe number one, he was reading Justice League number one, and he was saying deja vu. Mm-hmm. And in this one, he's kind of muted. You have a word balloon with three dots there as if he's kind of shocked because, again, there's a starfish on his face, and he's dropping that issue. <laughs> which I absolutely love. I like that cool little meta humor here that, I mean, this has got to be all Bart Sears doing, and it's it's very well done. Oh, this cover is just genius, because, yeah, it's, it's a perfect companion piece to Jay Lee, number one. I'm really glad you brought up that comparison of the, the five minutes later or five seconds later thing, because that's a you know that's a, it's a theme people get artists to commission. But yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, is, it is perfectly the only other flip besides the characters changing you mentioned is they flip the background from white to black. Otherwise, oh, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is perfectly matches up with Just League Europe, number Number one, uh, there's also some funny bits. He's he's added. I mean, guys, this is genuinely hilarious. Like, I look at this cover and I can't stop laughing. It's, you know, it's it's not one of those where you're like, oh, that's cute. It's like, no, that's damn funny. Uh, like Ralph, it's I guess because he's being mind controlled, he's sort of lost control. He's like shoving his hand into the back of Captain Adam's head, just yeah. shoving it. <laughs> there's like a stray starfish sticking to Rocket Red's shoulder out of the blue, and like a lot of times you can see people's eyes peeking out from behind the starfish. I mean, it's just funny. That is the really cool part is that Bart Sears was able to show emotion and uh, facial expressions when most of the faces are covered mm-hmm. because it's not just the, you know, the random eyeball you see here and there, but even the mouths and the lips, you know, they're, they're shocked or, or weird. Like it's very well done. Um, yeah. And are you familiar with the cat videos on the internet where they throw a slice of cheese on a cat's face and it's just kind of sitting there stunned for a second? <laughs> no, but I didn't, I didn't know. They had cat videos on the internet. That's news to me. Yeah, there's a couple. Well, this seems to be a new fad, and that's all I think about when I see Metamorpho, because that looks like a cat that had a piece of cheese thrown on its face. <laughs> so that's pretty much Starro for me now. The, the the only thing I found on the cover which doesn't work is they made Blue Jay's gloves green, mm-hmm. which is really strange. Uh, it's in the digital version and the original. I double jacked. Normally they're orange, so that's the only thing I found that didn't quite work. Okay, okay. Uh, Maybe because if it was orange, it would look too much like a slice of cheese. Maybe that's why they didn't do it. But that that, that joke's called a callback, son. You're supposed to laugh. Anyway, um, <laughs> the the fun part is this is now the sixth time. Now we talk about how often Kevin McGuire's cover has been, you know, parodied, right, uh, or or homaged, whichever. This is the sixth time just within Justice League series they've done this. Now, of course, the first one you mentioned, they did mm-hmm. it in Justice League number twenty four. Uh, they did Justice League Europe number one, which we talked about. They also did Justice League Annual number four, which was Justice League. Antarctica, and then they did Justice League Quarterly, uh, which was the conglomerate. So uh, this is now the sixth time we've seen this, which is great because, you know, obviously they'll do it a million more, but it's always fun. And Bart Sears is just such a great illustrator that it just looks gorgeous. Yeah, it, it really does. I, I do have to actually mention this to you. So right right next to the miscolored Blue Jay gloves, that brown hand, it is not Silver Sorceress's hand. That's got to be Flash's hand reaching for the Kara starfish. Uh, or Kara I, in general. Yeah, that's a good point. That could be yeah. Wally's hand. That pro- you're right. From the angle, that probably is Wally's hand. Yeah, and then and then Wally's facial expression there, where he looks just you know kind of you know in, enamored with her, and that's kind of been the history in this book. So technically, it's two coloring errors right next to each other. There. Yeah, I did not pick up on that. Wow. Okay, but it, it fits though with that. That's certainly Wally's behavior at this point. All right. Yep. Well, let's get into this thing. So far, it's great, right? So. 
Inside, the plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Bart Sears. Inker is Randy Elliott. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Stars in Your Eyes. Uh, JT, you want to start us off? Yep. All right. So we pick up where we left off last issue. Uh, the Justice League Europe are talking to that man with the starro stuck on his face, claiming that the great starro needs their help. The heroes all have differing viewpoints on whether this is a trap or not, which we'll get into that later, but that should not be differing viewpoints at all. Except for Kilowog, he is determined to help out a, quote, fella extraterrestrial. Catherine, being the only sane one here in the bunch, consults the <laughs> Justice League computer database for information on Starro because, hey, they keep track of their villains, at least in the computer system. She learns very quickly he is a horrible, mind-controlling, villainous monster with The Conqueror as his last name. She tries to go warn Kilowog to stop him before he leaves, learning instead that the JLE are going with him to find out firsthand what's going on. Uh, we have a brief interlude at New Scotland Yard where Steven Seagal, I mean Inspector Camus, <laughs> learns that his learns that his new orders are to be their liaison to the Justice League and his office will be in the JLE Embassy. Uh, he is less than thrilled. Uh, our heroes arrive at this quaint little English village where this guy came from. It's filled with Starro-faced townsfolk and they then lead the Justice League members to the devastated vessel of Starro. It's basically a broken down what looks like to be some form of a spaceship. Uh, in a tented off area, they are brought before a damaged dying Starro. So we get the the, the classic Starro. He's, he's not looking too good. He's hooked up onto life support and this is all done in a splash panel that is a must-see for all of you Bart Sears butt shot aficionados. <laughs> All right, so I'll take it from there. So the, the massive alien starfish, he's claiming that the humans of an English village are willingly helping him and genuinely compassionate towards Starro. But the Just League Europe, they aren't too sure. Now, Kilowog informs the group that he can repair Starro's spaceship to allow him to return home. But secretly, Kilowog also ensures that Starro will not be able to return to Earth. Meanwhile, at the London Embassy, Inspector Camus is settling into his new office within the Embassy. However, Catherine Colbert and Sue Dibney aren't exactly making him feel welcome, as he's sharing the space with the Stinky Cat's litter box. Now, back at the English village, the League helps with the repairs to Starro's ship. And once the rocket's ready to launch, the large Starro releases control of all the villagers. Tons of smaller starfish dropping to the ground and shriveling up. You know, who knew? Starro actually kept to his word. Crazy. So the rocket launches with the enormous Starro heading to the stars. But suddenly, something goes wrong. High up in the atmosphere, the rocket appears to explode. Then, in London's Piccadilly Circus, it begins to rain thousands of small starfish. These miniature Starro's attached to the faces of the people of London. Starro seems to take a liking to one particular homeless person, then declaring, Tomorrow, you will be our king. Next issue, never trust a stranger. And also, by the way, in, the, in there, you get an ad for a house ad for Just League Quarterly number three, which is pretty cool. All right, so, JT, what'd you think, man? Uh, well, I, I enjoyed this issue. I think I enjoyed the Bart Sears artwork probably more than anything. I feel... <laughs> I feel like this might be another, like a trend with Justice League Europe, where we're getting 
a lot of kind of standing around talking, not being heroes, not, you know, not jumping into the fray, not, you know, not what we would normally expect from a superhero comic. Obviously, that's what these comics are. They're, they're, they kind of turn that on its head a little bit. And later in this episode, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of a, of a Starro spotlight. Uh, my research with Starro made me like this issue even less. Ooh, okay. Um, we'll get into reasons why, but a lot of it has to do with this. There really should be no questioning, well, who's Starro, why do we, you know, is he on the level? What's he asking for? And and we'll get into that later. But he did some awful, awful stuff in the old Justice League of America, especially issues 189 and 190. And they should have instantly just, I don't know, clobbered him, gotten him out of there. This shouldn't have been, hey, let maybe let's help him out. So, all right, let, let's talk about that. I'm going to play devil's advocate on you here for a second. Okay. So okay. now, Elongated Man was absolutely part of the league at that yes. time, right? Yeah. So he should have been the big red flag there. But beyond yes. him, everyone else is new. So, you know, I, for a moment there, I, I thought a lot about that, that they were reacting very calmly to Starro. Now, mm-hmm. there's also just one starfish there, you know, so maybe it was worth hearing him out and not clobbering him. But yeah, I agree. Elongated Man should have had a meltdown. And, you know, the rest of the team should have kind of been up to speed on the major Justice League villains, don't you think? I would think so. Well, so that's the thing. So Ralph was absolutely part of that two-parter from the old league. And that old league had to do with New York City. Either they stop Starro or the place gets nuked. Like it couldn't have been more serious. Mm-hmm. And and Ralph throughout this whole issue is kind of like, huh, I don't know. Eh, maybe. I, let, let's see. Wally is the one who was like, hey, listen, the original Flash told me about Starro. He's he's the one who's reacting the way I would. Yeah. And Captain Adam just says, bag it, West. Like, just shuts him up. What is that all about? Well, Captain Adam is pretty much always frustrated with Wally, though, because Wally (laughs) has been a pain in his neck. So there's that. So he's probably reacting to Wally unfairly there. But to be honest, Wally's a pain in the ass, really, (laughs) on this team. True. So Catherine goes and checks the league database. Why don't they just have this regularly, you know, something that they would check immediately? None of the heroes thought to do this. Catherine was the only sane one where it's like, "Ah, okay, I don't know about this this guy, but let's look this up. I'm glad you mentioned that because in my notes, it also says Catherine's the only intelligent one that researched yeah. this. So if we both, it's like, okay, once again, she is the biggest asset on the team. <laughs> right. And even in that, when she, when they're looking at the, the actual files, it says nearly defeated the Justice League on numerous occasions, which we'll get to that later. But even still, if that's accurate, you know, I just feel like people would know about Starro. If, if his shtick is mind controlling populations, any of these other heroes must have at least read a newspaper article about him or saw him on, you know, the news or something. Mm-hmm. No, that's fair. So I, I guess I originally started by saying I was going to play devil's advocate, but actually I'm, I'm right on board with you. Uh, let's see. A couple little coloring errors here and there. Nothing really that has to be pointed out, but on page four, did you notice the weird placement of Captain Adam's eyes in panel five? Oh, yeah, it is a coloring area. You're right. They colored his eyelids yellow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, yeah. It's it, it makes him look very, very weird. And I can't unsee it now. So <laughs> my favorite part of that is where you say there's some coloring errors we don't need to mention. And then you did. I love that. That's great. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's how I that's how I talk with the wife so I can get my point across. There you go. Now on that same page, I got to point out, you know, but I always say Catherine Colbert and Sue Dibney are the smartest people on the team. And I love Sue's got a great line here yeah. where Catherine's <laughs> looking for the team because they're gone. And Sue says, if you're looking for the fools assembled, I love that fools <laughs> assembled. They're out back. Oh, bless you, Sue. I adore you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're, yeah. I agree. They're great. I do like Catherine goes running and just says, never trust an interplanetary starfish. I mean, that should have been the title of the issue, but right. <laughs> Why don't you talk about this subplot with Inspector Camus? Sure, because sure. It's been a while since I've read those earlier issues where he was introduced. People really hate him, right? And I don't think he deserves that level of hate. Like he, he was. There was certainly animosity between him and the league right from the start, right? And, and mainly, it was because he didn't like superheroes operating in his city. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember him ever being a terrible person. Like they just didn't get along. Yeah. And then here, you know, Sue makes a joke suggesting like you know why she doesn't like Camus and she's like do you want the top 10 list or or you want the top 40 you know and it's like wow okay she must really hate him but yeah. I don't I don't remember anything in the comic comics that really justify that level of hatred of this guy I felt like I was missing something and I felt I would defer to you on that because I don't remember I mean a top 40 reasons like he's appeared what twice I, I don't a little, <laughs> more, a little more than that a little more than that he was he was definitely in the early issues more he was gotcha. clearly going to be a recurring character which they they sort of started to phase out towards the end of their Paris run gotcha okay he does look like Steven Seagal though right yeah totally <laughs> <laughs> well maybe not the build but yeah the hair and all that yeah <laughs> yeah I like in uh, so when they're heading towards the uh, this this town that's taken over by sorrow i like this cool platform that kilowog whipped together and it's completely it only works because rocket red is is flying it the fact that he's he's flying it and then the panel on the other page he's landing it it's very kind of a unique design it, it's not even mentioned or really talked about it's just there it is so badass folks yeah. you're gonna have to go to the gallery for this one uh it looks great yeah it's 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 just a flying rectangle essentially is what it is yeah. and everyone's standing on it but yeah what makes it awesome is Rocket Red. He's not just flying it. He's He's got these really long, like, it's almost like a rope, but it looks cooler than that. It's like a chain with all kinds of metal pieces and stuff. He's holding two different pieces, which is keeping it level, and it just looks awesome the way he's dragging it, and then, like yeah. you said, the way he lands it from underneath, too. You know, yeah. um, they're like marionette sticks that move current the frog's hands. That's a terrible example. That's all I can come <laughs> up with. Anyway, it, it just looks badass, because it's, you know, it, it's all shiny, it's metal, it's you know, Bart's ears. So I, it's one of my favorite things in the issue is as silly as it is. I just love that flying platform. Well, and I think the reason why we're kind of gravitating towards it is because it's like a superhero thing. Like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just a cool it's something that, well, here's something cool that Rocket Red did. And a lot of times, you know, the, in, in these comics, these superheroes don't do too many superhero type things. And it's just kind of cool that it's just happening in the background. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely like that a lot. Since you mentioned that, I got to mention the fact that on the same page, along the same lines, you talk about characters don't get to do much. Yeah. Since Blue Jay joined the team, he has done nothing. <laughs> like, he's had a couple of lines of dialogue, a little bit here or there. I think he did more in this issue in 
like three panels, maybe four panels, than he's done the whole time he's been on the team. He actually got to do something. Now, it was yeah. just a conversation with Captain Adam, but at least he got a speaking part. And it like it, it seemed to carry some weight. I was like, oh my gosh, Blue Jay, you did something. I'm so happy. Yeah. Well, and I like the little rhyming that, you know, he, he's consulting Captain Adam because he's got some questions about this and they're flying side by side. And he goes, could this be a trap cap? And he, Captain Adam goes, hard to say, Jay. I thought that oh was my cool. Gosh, I never, I didn't even pick up on that because I didn't uh, <laughs> say any of it out loud. How funny. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little back and forth there. So we're, we're in this town and we see that every single person in this town has a star on their face. I got to say the final panel on that page, on page seven, you see in the background, it's like a silhouette of the crowd. And the only features are wherever the heads are, you see a star. Mm-hmm. And it's really disturbing because there are two staros down low because there's children yeah. that have staros on their faces or potentially dwarves. I guess we don't really know. <laughs> or someone's wearing the star on their crotch but uh but no i disturbing is exactly the word that was in my mind when i saw that panel too was like oh kids oh yeah the the kids part is what and it's so subtle and not mentioned or anything but but that was yeah that that's really creepy and speaking of creepy so ralph is he's doing the nose thing and he's looking for things that are out of out of sorts you know you know clues things like that and he just keeps saying you know it's 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 creepy in here at one point he says isn't that kevin mccarthy uh are you aware of what that reference is? I had to look it up. So, because <laughs> okay. first, he, first he makes a reference that says, let me know if you see any pods. Any pods. Right. Yes. So obviously like, okay, pod people get it. I get the joke. And then he makes it a Kevin McCarthy joke. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. I had to Google it. Once I got past <laughs> all the political stuff, who apparently Kevin McCarthy is nowadays, I got to the movie actor and yes, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's a reference yes. to the old Invasion of the Body. I'm like, oh, that makes sense now. Yep. The original 1956. It's a, it's a sci-fi classic. So it's, it is a funny joke but like i said i don't think ralph should be joking here he should be like are we gonna nuke this town like new york was almost nuked that that's the part that sticks with me but we get to the ship so this is another thing you know starro never had a ship that i was aware of and Hmm. you know here here we have this this giant you know some sort of spacecraft it's it's dilapidated it's in rough shape they even make a mention you know how how long has it been here how has this not been spotted by now i'm not sure if in the next few issues of the Starro storyline that's answered, hmm. but it's it it is kind of odd because this was never part of Starro's shtick in the past. I know maybe that was specifically a clue to readers who are you know maybe you know lo- longer DC readers who thought, well, this isn't adding up. What's this here? Of course, this is post crisis, so you know this could also be you know well maybe well this is the first post crisis Starro. Yeah, yeah. There could be some of that as a as a reasoning why. You know, we do get one panel of Starro's ship getting destroyed or. Are smashed up in the atmosphere, and he says it's a meteor shower that crippled his ship. So, you know, like you said, maybe again, because I haven't read ahead, maybe we'll find mm-hmm. out there was more to it than that. I, I just don't know. And this right. is the point where Tim Price is losing his mind because he's knowing he's he's hopping up and down, raising his hand, going, "Oh, oh, I know, I know." Sorry, sorry, Tim. <laughs> well, and I took that as like a memory. I don't, I don't know if they all saw that. I, I feel right. Yes, that was a memory. Yes, yes, yeah, that's okay, fair. yeah, yeah. You know, the original, you know, his original appearance. You know, they just. You know, you see a giant starfish just flying through space and landing in uh, on Earth. So even way back when, you know, he didn't have a starship. He just flew through space. Got to say, on those pages, real quick. Um, yeah. Yastaro, 
looks ridiculous. He always has, right? Yeah. And especially with like the red Captain America shield circle eyeball thing he's got going on, right? But dang, Bart Sears makes it look cool. He I mean, really like, does. I, I feel for this this sick Starro that's being kept alive by all these machines poked in, mm-hmm. you know, you know, basically like IVs into his system and his eyeball that's like sweating and it's like, wow, I I genuinely yeah. feel for it, which is the first and only time I can think of that I cared about Starro. <laughs> yeah, he does a phenomenal job. I mean, and, and that is one of the best things with this series is when Bart Sears is doing it, just because it takes a while for this story to get moving. And, you know, again, we know this is kind of like a three-parter. You, you, you keep coming back from Bart Sears' artwork. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he just he does so well. And it's weird that, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't seem to really know much of Bart Sears nowadays. So, Oh, he's definitely out there doing stuff uh, for some uh, more smaller publishers. Yeah, some okay. uh, cell, some cell phone stuff too. I'm pretty sure. Gotcha. I loved his Wizard uh, How to Draw series. That sure. was always fun back in the day. We have, you know, what, what I guess you could say, classic Starro, very large. You know, what three stories tall, two stories tall. You know, he's hooked up there. Like you said, the eyeball is sweating. I found that very disturbing as well. What is fun is Kilowog is the guy here. He's the one who's planning on fixing up the ship. I love on page twelve when he has his dialogue talking about what he has to do mm-hmm. well the praxilator is a little frazzed and your flubu crystals are a jewel low in the magnoplasma but that's a snap the only tough part will be replacing your fan belt <laughs> <laughs> that's great that's just such a funny moment because yeah. it's such a you know it's like alien mechanic and then earth mechanic it is good stuff right now i'm going to point out something to you it's a little hard to see it on that page but i never noticed this until you know when you research for a podcast you start to notice stuff one of the things they purposely did is all of kilowog's word balloons have a really thick black outline. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to see it on that page because there's nothing else but him and Starro talking. But if you go to another page uh, where he's talking and so is someone else, you'll notice uh, like a, a very distinct difference between Kilowog's word balloons and everyone else's. It's like, oh, so Kilo- they're, they're showing us that Kilowog has a weird voice. You yeah, know, like, 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 it's, like strong. deeper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, in Starro's, he has a weird jagged yellow outline to his, so he must have some sort of alien yep. speak. But we, you know, of course, we can't tell. But And the handwriting is kind of wibbly wobbly like he's sick, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So what do you think of uh, of the cat and Camus? <laughs> this this was this was really well done. The the last two panels when when uh, Kat, uh, is it Catherine talking or is it Sue? It's Catherine. It's when, Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. When she's talking, you know, you're going to have to share that room with the cat's cat box. You have to take it up with the cat. And the way that it like dawns on him that he has to take it up with the cat. And then he spins to look at the cat and the cat's just growling at him. That's just a great comedic, you know, really well done there, too. Yeah, the stuff with Camus was fun. Like, earlier in the police station when he's upset and he's banging his head against the wall looks yeah. great here the the bit is cute you know it's it, it doesn't it doesn't last too long they, they get in they tell the joke they get out which is perfect you don't want to hang around too long when you're telling a joke and bart sears has taken a special liking to drawing this cat like you know bart sears when you see us when you see a character by bart you're like okay i can tell this by bart sears this cat looks sure. like nothing i've ever seen bart sears draw this looks <laughs> like simon bisley drew this cat i mean it's it is the ugliest gankiest looking gross thing that doesn't look anything like something Barsers would draw and I love it for that much yeah. more for that. It looks like Total Bean and Beset from uh, Swamp Thing. Yeah, Elmore there Swamp you go. <laughs> it dragged right out of the swamp. Yeah, it's, it's really well done and it, it adds that much more character to that, you know, I mean, we've already had lots with the cat, but it's nice when you get them in small doses like this that he's still around and he's still a pain in the ass. I, I enjoy that. Yeah. 
I don't have a ton of other notes for the rest of the issue. You know, we the, the ship gets gets all set up and goes, and you know, of course, then it, it goes. Hold on, before you leave. So look on page fifteen of the ship. Okay. Okay. So uh, yep. I got a question for you because you're you're a you're a nerd of a certain age. You might catch yeah. this reference. Did you ever watch? And this probably would have been uh, maybe uh, on VHS tape or something. But did you ever watch Transformers the movie, the animated movie? Yes. Okay. Do you remember when they're on like the junk planet and they have to build a ship to escape the junk planet and then maybe the Junkatrons? Or I can't remember their names. Derek Crab's yelling at me right now, so I can't remember the names. But anyway, <laughs> they they escape the junk planet, and I swear, just off the top of my head, without doing any research, this ship looks when it's up. Right, looks a lot like the ship they used to escape the junk planet. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my memory. Yeah, I can see that. I, I can start hearing Dare to be Stupid by yes! Rodale now when I'm looking at this scene. Which seems very fitting for this comic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is cool because in the background you see all the townspeople carrying the massive Starro from his little circus tent all the way over to the now repaired ship. Uh, I don't think I noticed that before, so that's yep. kind of a cool little uh, detail because it's way off in the background. Uh, a lot of splash panels in the this particular issue. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the one earlier uh, about where, you know, they, they getting the patented Bart Sears scene where you get to see Power Girl's butt and side boob in the same shot. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's, you get to see everyone's butt, though, to be fair. I mean, you've yeah, got a long gated man's butt, butt going on there. A long gated man's butt, Captain Adam's butt, Wally West's butt. You know, there's a lot of butt. Uh, but yep. now I don't know if that's Bart Sears is doing or it's Giffen's layouts because, I mean, Giffen does love a butt shot. We know that. Mm-hmm. Bless him. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> as much as you want to say, oh, it's, you you know, exploitation, he's playing fair. You're getting girls and guys yeah, yeah. both being exploited. And, you know, it's hot, man. So it, it's, the, uh, <laughs> it's the superhero physique, you know. That's, yep. you, know you got it. You got to flaunt it, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I got a question for you at the end, right? You started talking mm-hmm. about this, and I cut you off earlier because I'm just sick of hearing you talk. Um, yeah. So Starro's ship goes up in the air, explodes. All the Starro's rain down. So question, because we're just speculating because we haven't read ahead. Was mm. that Starro's plan all along? Or is this something that's happened as a result of a malfunction? I feel that it has to be his plan all along. The fact that he then lands on this beggar um, or homeless person and, you know, saying, oh, you're a perfect vessel for my central awareness. You know, you're going to be a king tomorrow. And they're all speaking. You will be, you know, tomorrow you will be our king across the board. I I don't trust Starro. Um, right. Yeah, agree. You know, so, yeah. that What is funny, though, and on the last last page. Uh, again, I know what you're going to sp- say because I was about to, too. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a splash panel. Uh, the uh, the guy in the forefront, yes! uh, he's, got, he's got a bowler hat on. He must have gotten struck in the face by Starro, knocked his hat off, then Starro, controlling him, reached back down and put the hat back on. Yes! <laughs> I love that. That's such a goofy detail. That's like my favorite. It, what, a, what a quintessential British thing, too, here. Like, yeah. it, you know, not, not real British, but like stereotypical. Stereotypical, sure. quintessential British to have the guy with the boulder hat, the bowler hat, he's got the vest, you know, the, yep. the three-piece suit, and he's got the big bushy mustache, you know. Yeah. You know I'm sure he talks like this, you know, just yep. like, oh, yep. oh, yep. uh, so I, I absolutely love that shot. I really, really do. Did you see the guy with the Superman shirt behind him? I was trying to figure out if it's a Superman shirt or something else, because the shirt's yellow, but that sure looks like the corner of the Superman S-Shield. A little bit wrong, though. So I, I, Oh, yeah, maybe. It could be anything, but that's certainly where my mind went. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a reverse Superman that we don't know about? I don't. Not that I can think of. Dude, check out the car behind him. There's a guy's wearing a Starro, and he's still got a lit cigarette. Yep, um, yep. I guess your mouth is exposed when you're... Got the stars, so I guess that makes sense. But I guess Starro's Starro's a smoker. <laughs> 
yeah, I really liked how it ended. And uh, in my opinion, Justice League got played for saps and they should have known better. Yeah. But we'll see what happens in the next two. Yep. Well, I got two more notes real quick before I'm done. Okay. Both, are about, both are about Blue Jay. Just simply, uh, Blue, in the very beginning of the comic, Blue Jay is he's the voice of the audience here, right? Because he's saying, hey, we just got done with giant worms. Now that we're dealing with starfish, you know, what's going on with the, all these animals? So, like, <laughs> he's kind of the voice of the audience there, or at least the, the creative team going, look, guys, we know we're leaning into the animals here okay you know sort of thing so uh that was nice and then there's just a silly panel that obviously bart sears was having fun oh, it's a page two and it's the uh, f- uh fourth panel and it's it's just a simple panel it's like killer walks back and he's explaining he's gonna help or whatever right but mm-hmm. blue jay is perched on top of elongated man's <laughs> head it yeah, just yeah. I don't, it looks like batman on top of a gargoyle you know or something it just cracked me up it's, and i don't know that i wouldn't noticed if i hadn't been reading in panel by panel mode you know so it looked great yeah I, well it, it's it's a lot of white space behind it so it might have still popped but yeah it, it, it definitely has a, a goofiness to it because even it looks like elongated man is you know kind of almost looking up it seems like and being like what's going on up there but but, uh, yeah. yeah, it's definitely a nice little touch because usually you see the little guy on teams is always on someone's shoulder. Yeah. So, yeah, perched on top of a head is very funny, which he's perched on Catherine's shoulder on the, the first panel of that page. So More exploitation. She's wearing like a jazzercise workout clothes. So Yep, yep. But then again, Captain Adam is apparently just uh, a, a condom stuffed with walnuts. He's, he's all muscle too, so. <laughs> hey, did you watch Tremors yet? I have. Now, see, you have the uh, disadvantage of recording this before everyone else has heard me say that, yes, I have watched Tremors now. So, oh, okay, good. All right. So, yes. So overall, I, I liked this issue. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's you, you said that you thought Bart Sears' art was the best part. You didn't necessarily like all the the non superheroic stuff, but that's kind of what I come to Justice League for. Sure. I want to see the in between the fights, what goes on, and the interpersonal issues. And there was a lot of interpersonal issues here. Yeah. Um, now, again, there are some leaps of logic that should have been made. They should have been more wary of Starro. Totally on board with you there. But I, I enjoyed the issue. What about you? Like. Is this an issue you would enjoy coming back to, or is it like okay, I'm done with it? Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 I agree. I mean, yeah, you anybody that reads these Justice League, you know, issues, Justice League, Justice League uh, International, yeah, you're looking for those what happens between the panels type stories, you know, the stuff that happens but before the big or between the big fights, and and they do a fantastic job. I guess because we see Rocket Red doing this really cool thing where he's like piloting this platform. I just wonder if maybe like in his case, would he have made it out of the 80s, early 90s if he was utilized more? You know, if if people saw how badass he really could be instead of being in a book that was more talky and more, you know, let's discuss things. Uh, you know, Captain Adam had the benefit of having his own series. However, Captain Adam really isn't, you know, he didn't really do much beyond all of, you know, this iteration of the League as well. So, I don't know, I just, it's something I always thought about. Well, the Captain Adam series is actually, if I'm remembering right, we're about to get to Armageddon 2001. So the Captain Adam yes. series is about to end. Um, yes. So, yep, yep. yeah, I, th- I think Rocket Red, I mean, there could have been a lot there with him, because, you know, when the Soviet Union collapses, right, there could have been mm-hmm. a whole story about how he's now a European citizen, you know, or something. And what's yeah. it like for someone from uh, a government that's not really in existence anymore? And how does he fit in? And what's he doing there? And I mean, because his suit is awesome. His power yes. sets. It's a guy in armor. You can do anything with that. If you don't like the design, you can redesign it two years later. You know, there's mm-hmm. always stuff you can do with a guy in armor. And mm-hmm. it's a real shame that they they lost track of that character because he's wonderful. And the crap I, that happened later on down the line, forget all that. 
Yeah, I I don't even know that stuff. But I mean, we we see him in the background. I think what twice in Justice League Unlimited. So thankfully, yeah. Bruce Tim and them, you know, brought him at least for for us to. <laughs> hey, yeah. there's Rocket Red. I remember him. <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, I mean that that's a a minor criticism of the series as a whole. Is you know you, you're reading all these you know even even over in Justice League America you know Blue Beetle Booster Gold they have cool things they do and most of the time they're not doing them. You, you know Blue Beetle's gun. You know you never see him using it right. uh, or very rare you know and you've already talked about this on the other show but yeah i just i do really like this issue i'm excited to read more i am a a starro fan so yeah this was this was good stuff well speaking of starro that is a great segue to our character spotlight this is where JT is going to share some thoughts about Starro for us and uh, tell us about like where he was in the DC Universe prior to this and what kind of impact you know this story may have had on him. So, JT, why don't you tell us a little bit about Starro the Conqueror? All right. Well, like I said, this is the first post-crisis Starro appearances. The the stuff in Justice League Europe that we're reading now, This he hadn't been seen about six years prior, which was in Crisis on Infinite Earths. But prior to that, he only had five appearances, a total of four stories prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Really? Uh, yeah. I find that so, shocking. Well, and according to the Justice League database, they would be shocked too, because they said on numerous occasions he fought the Justice League. Mm-hmm. We have, of course, Brave and the Bull number 28, February, March, 1960 issue. Uh, pretty well known. Uh, you know, anybody who knows DC probably at least knows that cover. I've heard um, of it. Yeah. Yeah. It, somewhat, you know, necessary issue there for, for Justice League fans. He basically travels across billions of miles of interstellar space. No spaceship. He lands on Earth. He evolves three Earth starfish to be his starfish deputies. And then he's eventually imprisoned in an unbreakable shell of lime. And then we don't see him for 17 years. Wow. <laughs> the next time we see him is Adventure Comics 451, 1977. That was when Aquaman was the main feature of the book. We find out that that original Starro had a contingency plan and left a chunk of himself to regrow in case he was defeated. This is exactly what happened. And they explain, you know, why it took 17 years, uh, you know, because comic book <laughs> timeline. Sure. And uh, basically he regrew more powerful because of Earth's pollution. And at this point now, he could mind control people. Mm. So the pollution thing is kind of an interesting nod to this story as well, because he explains in this story that he's dying as a result of the air pollution on Ah, Earth. Good point. But in that second appearance of his, he was more powerful because of the pollution. So that version was defeated by Aquaman and then taken by Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. We don't know where, but he, he shows up for a panel and flies off with him. We're assuming into space. Then we get about four or five years later, 1981 is when he comes back again. These are the aforementioned Justice League of America issues, 189 and 190, two-parter. We find out that yet another chunk of Starro was left, and this ended up at Long Island. This one was able to mind control people as well. They're mind controlling people to feed it protein. And this was the first appearance of the little tiny Starros mm-hmm. that stuck all over people's faces. So this shtick of his that really has been the centerpiece of what Starro does, it didn't happen until 21 years after his first appearance. Jeez, that would have been Jerry Conway writing that, right? Yes, and those had the gorgeous Brian and Bowland covers. Oh, wow, that's right. Starro's on top of the Empire State Building, and uh, the Justice League all have Starro's on their faces. 
So that story was, I mean, it's a very, very, very good story. And it, New York City is completely taken over by Starro. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a lot of people. And half of the Justice League as well are taken over, including Superman and Firestorm. And the other half of the Justice League show up in the second part. And they are given basically, they're, they're pleading with the military at the time saying, you know, let's go in and let's, let's see if we can stop this. Because the only other plan was to nuke New York City. And I won't give away what happened, but of course, Starro didn't win because New York wasn't nuked. Spoilers. Yes. This is why in this issue, you know, after reading that and then reading this issue, it's tough to keep it separate because that other one really was played as a disaster, you know, endgame type of story. Like it was do or die and Starro was just, I mean, everybody should have known what happened in New York City then. Right. Then we take a weird, <laughs> we take a weird turn into 1982. Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew, number one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we find out that, hey, guess what? Yet another chunk of Starro was left over. This one specifically stating from that Adventure Comics 451, and his chunk fell through a portal into the Earth Sea universe. And his plan was to conquer all of Earthsea by reverting all the funny animals to their primitive states. Mm-hmm. In so doing, there's weird sci-fi rays that also bounce off of Superman. And this is what gave the entire zoo crew their superpowers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm freaking out of here because in my mind, Starro appeared all over the DC universe for like, you know, 60 years or whatever. Right. Yep. yep. But there's so few appearances. And so far, everything you've said, I've read. So yes. th- that's where yep. the illusions coming from is that I read all of these, so I just assumed there were a million other appearances I hadn't read. <laughs> well, and what's great about Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew, this Starro, who was also kind of a joke teller, so it was a very odd version of Starro, uh, he was also defeated by Lime. So, you know, make sure everybody keeps Lime near them in case, you know, Starro's around. Right, or Snapper Car. Keep one or the other. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but that, that, make, that makes a really good nod, though, having the first zoo crew story fight Starro because the Justice League's first story was fighting the Starro. So that's a nice synchronicity there. They did, and they even did a splash panel in there that mocked the Brave and the Bold 28 cover, where Perfect. the Zoo crew are taking on Starro in a similar fashion. Our next appearance is not a Starro-centric. It was Crisis on Infinite Earths issue 9. This was 1985, and this was that uh, big supervillain uh, oh, yeah. Brainiac ship issue. Uh, he is just there, assembled with the other villains, and then we see him again in that issue, getting punched in the eyeball by Superman. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's it until 1991. So that is crazy. Again, I, I, know. I thought it was a million appearances, and now I'm just flummoxed that I've read all of them. <laughs> Not only that, but he's gotten so huge now with animation and live action that it it, it is weird. You you assume, wow, this really is a big big bad guy. I mean, he's a, James Gunn's The Suicide Squad. You know, everything know. The, the first Justice League movie should have been. If they could pull that off for Suicide Squad, that should have been Justice League. Just to have them fight Starro for their first, you know, adventure. I don't know if being in the Suicide Squad makes him a household name or not, but, like, it's darn close. You know, I yeah. mean, there are regular people out there that will never read a comic now who know who Starro is. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Yeah, uh, and they did the little Starros in that really well. Uh, they did the giant eyeball really good. They did a good job with that. You know, he was used in uh, in Superman the Animated Series. We 
see him just as a background character. He then that is a then a callback all the way into Batman Beyond because it's all the same continuity. Where when they did the Justice League of the Future of the Batman Beyond universe, we find out that spoilers that Starro busted out of his cage at the Fortress of Solitude and controlled Superman for who knows how long a period of time. Oh, okay, okay. And then the other time, and I'll just mention this: this is way past our time frame here, but the uh, the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon that was a long running subplot in season two where the faceless hunter was placing Starro's on various defeated heroes faces Hmm, as a coming of Starro himself the conqueror so he's been used quite a bit uh and I think to great effect because he he is creepy and kind of Lovecraftian too which is just you know uh, this stuff is just great it works so well in comics it does it does and and you got to mention the robot chicken thing so if you haven't (laughs) seen the star on robot chicken just google that folks it's hysterical yeah yeah (laughs) it's very good well that was amazing JT thank you so much for sharing that I I I genuinely learned I, I don't know well I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this like I learned a lot about Starro I, I guess I learned that I knew everything about Starro I guess is what I learned but that's uh, a <laughs> yep. wow okay well thank you so much I really appreciate that and that leads us now to a big decision moment we have to make about this issue we are now going to nominate the One Punch Award This is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it's fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny, awe-inspiring, whatever, whatever we want. Uh, Both myself and JT are going to pick one moment for the coveted One Punch Award. Now, JT, you're the guest, which is a a shame for everyone having to listen, so I apologize, folks. But as the guest, you get to go first. What do you got? All right. Well, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this. The answer is no. Okay. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) My, My One Punch Award is the front cover. Oh, wow. It was just a brilliant use of uh, meta humor, referencing issue one through pictures, no words at all. Sears' ability to provide personality through facial expressions with starfish covering them. And quite honestly, when was the last time you raved about a cover in this podcast? Mm, yeah, especially in the Just League Europe books. Yeah, because I, I like I don't know if no one probably ever notices this, guys, but I do a custom little image for every issue or every episode of the podcast. And every episode has a custom Just League International Bahaha podcast custom. And I have to pick one of the covers, America or Europe. And I almost always pick America because the covers are better. And this is a case where this is absolutely the better cover of the month. So, uh, yeah. Wow. Okay. I got to tell you, JT, I was struggling because I, I, my moments were going to be really not that strong. Like, I loved the moment with Rocket Red pulling the sled. Like, there was no reason for that to win, but I loved it that much. And obviously, we got a lot of mileage out of talking about it. Sure. I love that giant splash page of, you know, Power Girl's butt and uh, the giant starfish. You know, like, I, that's a great looking splash page. Not sure. just for Power Girl's butt, for a lot of reasons. But, dude, I immediately surrender. Yes, the cover. I, I can't <laughs> believe I didn't think of that. The cover is genius genius on this thing. It is absolutely one of those funny moments that we'll always look back to. So yeah, mm-hmm. no no discussion. Decision made. Congratulations uh, to the whole team and Starro for uh, the cover <laughs> of Just League Europe number 26. You have won the coveted One Punch Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. Now, JT, I need to ask a favor. As a pest control expert that you are, uh, would you mind hanging around here for a bit and kind of cleaning up all these starfish that are just turned up everywhere? Sure. Obviously, I don't leave home without snap traps and glue boards, so don't worry about it. I got it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, JT. Now, uh, don't worry. We will bring you back at the end of the show, and while JT's taking care of that for us, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Law.
All right, folks. Now, before we get into your feedback, I do need to address something. Uh, you heard me talking to JT just seconds ago, and now I probably sound very, very different. Uh, because as strange as it is, in those few seconds between me talking to JT and now, I have somehow caught a terrible cold and have pretty much lost my voice. So I am going to struggle through this feedback, and then miraculously, on the back end of this, when we say goodbye to JT, I'll sound perfectly fine. So uh, that's how quickly you can get over a cold in the podcasting business. Also, as we get into this feedback, at the time of this recording, the Hero Points podcast crossover episode just came out. So we will cover that feedback on the next episode. Now remember, folks, we want you to be part of this feedback. So go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your thoughts on the show post there. Go put on social media, use the hashtag FWPodcast, or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it's about building a community of online fans around the show. Now, I'm going to be pulling your comments, uh, thoughts from the website, as I said, emails, some social media stuff, just pulling bits and pieces. Specifically, we're going to be covering the episode featuring Justice League America number 49 with my guest Damian Drew A. Whiter and Justice League Europe number 25 with my guest Shotgun. All right, so first up is Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does shows such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, I'm going to get a little meta about both titles. You mentioned how underwhelming, for lack of a more precise word, this, quote, anniversary 25th issue of Justice League Europe was, and I tend to agree. It seems to me that both creators and the audience had a little ugly stepsister syndrome with Justice League Europe, which was firing on all cylinders, especially when Bart Sears is drawing. Which, by the way, uh, Gus points out that Bart Sears stayed on Justice League Europe longer than Kev McGuire stayed on Justice League America. Mm, interesting observation. Gus goes on to say, some stories do tend to get maybe an issue too long. Sure, but this is a great superhero comic all around. A final guess is uh, the lack of fanfare on the 25th issue is I believe this series got backtracked for a little bit. Those issues that we felt like were fill-ins and probably the actual 25th issue was supposed to be one of the Starro Saga issues and just couldn't make it. That is a very distinct possibility, Gus. He also says he loved Damien and Shotgun as guests and boy, Ernie as Jack Kirby, mind blown. Yeah, hey, Gus, that was me too. Totally blew me away when that knowledge bomb got dropped by Damien. All right, up next is Siskoid from our Canadian embassy. There's a lot of international comments this time around. I mean, there usually are, but they just seem to really jump out at me how many international commenters we have on the show. Wow, love you guys. All right, so Siskoid from the Canadian embassy. He also is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as FW Team Up, Hero Points, and more. He says, I came early for my pod and blog partner Shotguns, JLI Premier. Uh, but his comments he reserved for Damien with the JLA segment. Siskoid says, on the notion of whether Americans like to laugh at themselves or not, my mind goes back to Stephen Fry's comparison of American and British humor. The American comedy hero laughs at others, he's Bugs Bunny, and the British comedy hero laughs at himself, he's Mr. Bean. Hmm, interesting thought. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. Uh, they have their own Symbol Pending uh, blog all about Power Girl. They write, you remember when old Doctor Who would have to uh, pat out their six-parters? There'd be an episode where the Doctor and the Companion would start out captured, only to escape and have some wacky shenanigans, only to be recaptured at the end of the plot so they could pick up the next episode? Well, personally, I think the Justice League America comic reminded me of that, especially as they more or less admitted that they're saving something special for the final oversized issue. Now, don't get me wrong, it's well told and well illustrated, and at least Jean gets to show he's a detective, but it's not got that much really substantial. Not hating it, but I think it's good that it's ending next issue. Well, thank you, Symbol Penning. Then we heard from Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy. He also does the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Martin says, The general glory story continues to be a good read. I agree, the cover's tremendous. 
As regards to the Just League Europe issue, I remember being a little confused by the title, Nightcrawlers. Why was it referencing a Marvel character? The term isn't used over here, though now I know it's an insect. I was also confused by Yellow Jacket as a kid. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, then Martin says, uh, in answer to Shotgun's question about Wally West's uh, how he treated women, yes, a load of us hated it at the time. Then Martin says, Shag asked whether the giant worms were always under England. Uh, maybe they were. I'm from County Dunham in northeast England, where a local legend concerned the Lampton Worm, a dragon which terrorized local villagers. Ooh, that's interesting. All right, thank you. Then Martin said something about the cover, which kicked off an interesting conversation. I'm just going to share part of it here. Uh, Damien Drew A. Whiter from the England Embassy, uh, also the Should I Love This Comic podcast, and our guest last episode chimed in, all about cover coordinators. So here, here's the... Damien's famous for dropping knowledge bombs, right? So here's what Damien's, Damien says. Bob LaRose was the cover coordinator for DC in this period. They didn't have a cover editor until Curtis King joined the company later in the 1990s. According to the Meanwhile column from this era, Bob was responsible for all production elements of the covers from art production to paste-up and coloring. He was responsible for making sure whatever the editors wanted became a reality to deadline. It sounds like the cover coordinator was a pretty thankless job. He would have spent most of his time liaising with other people. For example, if he wanted Todd Klein to do the cover lettering, he'd have to go through production manager Bob Rosaskis, which was Todd's boss. I imagine this is why we began to see Bob LaRose coloring fewer and fewer covers. He was probably swamped with admin. I'd recommend checking out Todd Klein's blog. It's full of anecdotes about his time working in DC production and interviews with his coworkers. It's fascinating to see behind the scenes of what individual people actually did in their roles and how that changed from the late 70s to early 90s. That's awesome, Damien. You're so great with the knowledge bombs. Damien continues his feedback, sharing his thoughts on the comics. I had one further thought about why General Glory stories remembered differently to the rest of the JLI. It occurred to me that this is the only JLI story co-plotted by JMD Mateus rather than solely by Keith Giffen. Maybe it misses some of the spontaneity you get when each is used as a surprise to JMD Mateus. Hmm, maybe so. Interesting. He also says, I always found the Crimson Fox story a little underwhelming. I like the idea of her being twins and the evil perfumer makes for a great nemesis, but ultimately the worms don't really make any sense. Where do they come from? Why did they obey? Well, then Centaurin chimes in, which is our buddy Adam Ackerman from the Denmark Embassy. He actually has a theory. He says the worms were never under anyone's command. Really what happened is the tuning fork was actually a device for worm grunting for giant worms. It scared them to the surface like normal worms through worm grunting, and then the giant worms just then proceeded to be freaked out and attack and eat things. Though this does beg the question, what eats those worms that they'd actually be scared of? <laughs> Thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate that. Then we heard from Mike Dinas from the Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, what amazing guests. Damien is shotgun were delightful, and I really enjoyed listening to them for these issues. I never knew stink could sound so elegant in French, but shotgun nails it. Regarding Just League America, I love how much of the contrast this cover is to the previous General Glory covers. What started off as a rah-rah America just took a dark turn with this cover, and I don't see how anyone could not buy this issue. Regarding Just League Europe, uh, he loved the sound effect patu. I don't know why, but I love that weird sound effect on page 5. I'm not sure if Sears drew it in, but it cracks me up every time. Speaking of Sears, some of his faces in this issue are amazing. I feel like a healthy dose of praise has got to go to Elliot, the inker, but uh, some of those panels with stank and shadows are fantastic. Fantastic. All right. They heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim says, regarding Just League America number 49, Shag, I'm so glad you're enjoying the General Glory storyline. I'm not going to try and figure out the negative reputation because in the end, it just doesn't matter. It was from a moment in time and all of us have changed. So it's great that you're enjoying them now. I usually have the opposite problem where nostalgic glasses make something seem good, but I cringe looking at it today. For something to go the opposite, that's a gift. Regarding Just League Europe number 25, he says, I love the trope of 
everybody gets something to do, getting turned upside down for the team. Their complaint also rings true as they're not used to it. This is not how any superhero story goes. When we show up, we each have things to do. Being observers is not in their nature. They're not used to it, and it kind of upset them. I love that. Now, about the cover for issue number 25 of Just League Europe, I would contend that we're still in a period where issues 25, 75, 125, etc. are not treated as special landmark issues. Those are reserved for multiples of 50. So that's interesting. Uh, it's quite possible, Tim. And then that leads to a very interesting discussion with several people. Uh, Gus Casals chimes in. Siskoid chimes in. So uh, go ahead and check that out on the website. Again, it's over there on the comment section. Uh, Tim made some really good points about issues number 25 were not really celebrated back then. Then we're from Bucky749, a.k.a. the American Samurai. Who has their own YouTube channel. Uh, Bucky, Bucky gave us another status update. Uh, you know, they're building their own JLI embassy over there in Albuquerque. Thank you so much, Bucky, for that. And also, Bucky was very complimentary. He said that we had great guests in Shotgun and Damien. Thanks, Bucky. Then we heard from Captain Entropy, somebody you might have heard of before. He says, great episode. Damien and Shotgun were terrific guests. Whoever's next has a tough act to follow. <laughs> Certainly the guests on Justice League America did, didn't they? Uh, then Captain provided several different points. Uh, I'll just call out a few of them. It says, General Glory's idea of Respecting federal officers and letting them do their job is refreshing and radical. I know it sounds crazy, but out of respect for the general, I think we should all give it a try. Then he says, I know Jack Kirby is um, the more famous artist, but I think Joe Simon did some of the earliest pencil work on Captain America. They were both writer-artist types, so having Mason be the cartoonist here is not a deviation from the model. Yeah, that's a great point, Captain Andrew I'm glad you brought that up. All right, then we're from Dr. Ange, who has uh, his own Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary. He's also part of the Legion Super Bloggers. He says, as always, it's great to hear the coolest person online, Shotgun. And then he says, and I have to admit, Bart Sears are always impressed, but your coverage of the book has me rereading it for the first time in decades. His stuff is glorious. Yeah, it, it really, really is. Then we heard from Liz and Oswald. Liz says, The overplayed goofiness of the character that is General Glory is kind of funny, though I can see one of the reasons this didn't work. Since the grim, dark 90s got to the point where a truly earnest hero like Captain America and Superman made a comeback because it was at least a contrast. Also, people realizing that sometimes a good person is just a good person. You don't have to be overly grr, grr, angry. Someone close to me is dead and the world will pay. You don't need all that to be an interesting hero. Thank you, Liz. That's a great point. Then we heard from an old friend, Diablo Frank, from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. He has the Idlehead of Diablo blog, which is all about Martian Manhunter, and does many, many more projects. He's got a lot to say, so I'm going to read bits and pieces of this. Uh, he says, I will confess that I had a jaundiced view of female artists during this time period. I had very much embraced the chromium age and the proto-image style art, so I had a specific taste for what I expected from my superhero comics. I always loved and respected women, but in the early 90s, white guys very much dominated the fandom and the industry. Any deviation from that baseline was a minority within a minority. How many female minority readers were there who could also draw a comic book and do so quote-unquote correctly? We were still in the how-to-draw-the-comics-the-marvel-way mindset, where the further you got from John Bushima's model and the uh, X-Head's highly realistic proportions, the more wrong your art was. For instance, I've grown to appreciate Ramona Frayden with age, but in that period, I would have perceived her as corny like Jim Mooney or Kurt Schaffenberger. I really dug Cynthia Martin, who had a feminine energy but also worked best on edgier material, but fit okay with a spandex crowd. Jan Dershima had done some nice work in the 80s, but when she tried to go extreme on X-Factor, it was only slightly better than Herb Trimpey's stab. The only female artist I knew who could really draw cool was Joyce Chin, 
there were some great painters like Olivier and Julie Bell, but there weren't a lot of women pencilers and also none drawing contemporaneously stylish. I still find this position somewhat defensible, but the range of styles deemed acceptable expanded massively as manga influence began to dominate the late 90s. This more expressive movement seemed to allow for more female artists to more fully demonstrate their talents without Bronze Age constraints, but also comics were simply more welcoming and diverse in general. Now, there are plenty of women drawing competitively, and I specifically think Nicola Scott is about neck and neck with Ivan Reese for the best mainstream artist working. So it's a cross between old white guys like me expanding our minds, and they're simply being stronger and more broadly accepted to female artists today compared to 1991. Well, thank you very much, Frank. I appreciate that feedback. Then we heard from our buddy John Wilson, who's the John Reads Comics blog. He also does the Superman and Crisis podcast. John says, I want to join the ranks of the General Glory fans. I'm really enjoying this arc and hearing the comment on a recent episode that this is unofficially tied with Captain America's 50th anniversary made it make all the more sense. I wonder if the naysayers would have had a different reaction if this had not led to General Glory joining the team. If we'd had a five-issue story about a Captain America analog and then gone about our business, perhaps it would have just been seen as a story and nothing else. Since he stuck around, the story is instead a five-issue origin story, which could be seen as an overly long, protracted, and unnecessary vehicle to bring in a goofy new member. You know, that's a great point, John. I, and I do wonder whether General Glory was always intended to become a member of the team or maybe happened halfway through the story of uh, the saga, I, the six-issue saga. I just don't know. Uh, they were from Doug Adamson from our Scottish Embassy. You know, Doug has been catching up. He's been listening to a lot of our old episodes. He's been comment, leaving comments on our website on those old episodes. So you should check out the Firewater Podcast website. On the old, old, old episodes, you'll see some of Doug's comments coming through. And who knows, at his pace, he might be caught up now. If so, welcome to 2022, Doug. They were from Denim Jedi, who's also listening to the back catalog. He bought recently a JLA Huntress figure, which is part of that Total Justice spinoff line. Uh, and he's ordered the Todd McFarlane Blue Beetle and Booster figures. So uh, is this the start of his own JLI figure collection? I guess only time will tell. All right. This is the part of the show where I thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their own social media timeline, whether it's Facebook or Twitter. Now, this is a little interesting. You know, it is a long list of names. I realize that. It always is. And I always say this, and I always say the same thing I'm going to say, which is that I want to thank everyone who shows their support and promoted the show. So I really sincerely appreciate it, and I do like to call out everyone on this list. And this time out, I'm actually not going to call it everyone for a reason. Um, this time we got over 160 names. Oh my gosh. But it's for the most bizarre reason. Somehow one of our tweets got picked up by this, uh, I don't even know what to call it, some phenomena of Bitcoin accounts who uh, just tons and tons and tons of Bitcoin accounts just started retweeting one of our tweets. Which, hey, thank you. That's awesome. But I'm pretty sure a lot of these are bots or whatever. So I've sorted through all the 160 names that came through, sifted through all of them, boiled it down to either who are were real people or, or at least names I recognize from previous shows. So it's still 80 names. So thank you to everyone. But if I missed anyone, I'm so sorry. Just drop me a line and let me know, and I'll thank you on the next episode. So here we go. Here's everyone who helped promote the last episode uh, by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. Our thanks to... Adamson's Attic, Al Gerding, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Billy Delicious, The Blue Beetle and Booster Gold Facebook page, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Damian Drew A. Whiter, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, David A. Scudieres, Days of High Adventure podcast, Denim Jedi, Digest Cast, Doc Rx, Dr. Jennifer Schwartz Levine, Dr. Genealogist, Ed Moore, Frederico Hernandez, For All Mankind Super Friends podcast, Geek to Me Radio, Gus Casals, Jake Muir, Jason Pope, Jeff Poyer, Jeremy Daw, Joe Tonello, Johan Balasurier, John Coos, John Wilson, Kichi Baker, Connell, 
Lizanne Oswald, Mark's Mess, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthew Cody, Max Romero, Max Travers, Maz Enger 1978, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dynas, Mike Jameson, Mo Walker, Mountain Comics, Nicholas Allheim, Norman Wins, Outcasters, Batman of the Outsiders Podcast, Paul Kean, Paul Hicks, Pragmatic Gollum, Relatively Geeky Podcast, Retro Cabal, Roger Preeb, Scott X, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Shotgun, Siskoid, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, Tall Tower, Ted Kilvington and Justice Trek, Pat Stuff NS, Tim Price, Treasury Comics, Trent Lewis, Wacky Bronze Silver Age Comic Book Villains, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Wibbly Wobbly Dicey Wicey RPG Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Zach Cap Boots. Woof. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast, even you, uh, Bitcoin bots. I appreciate it. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is amazing. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of those Bitcoin bots. So let me know, and I'll be sure to include you in the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Again, go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments on the show post there. Over on Facebook, you can find us as Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, and on Twitter, it's JLI Podcast, or the email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Jamie and Drew A. Whiter and Shotgun for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback. And hey, for those of you that are still listening, I appreciate you sticking with me, even though my voice is horrible and it sounds like I'm going through puberty again. <laughs> now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we're going to see if we can bring Captain Entropy and JT the Exterminator to <laughs> uh, squeak uh, JT the Exterminator together in the same embassy. Halloween headquarters for the greatest podcast selection of classic horror films. The House of Frankenstein. New modern houses scare you. They're mortar, stone, and wood. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com for your favorite monsters and stars. Lon Chaney Jr. Creature that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. George Zuko. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. Peter Cushing. Is that what you want, Count Dracula? A last blaze of utter horror and violence. Christopher Lee. Revenge has spread over centuries and has just begun. Boris Karloff. Colin Clive. <laughs> it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And Don Knotts. So what is brave? How should I know? I'm chicken. Plus, only at Supermates Podcast, your favorite comic superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Wonder Woman, Superman, we meet again. You must pay for burying me. Check your local podcast listings for a location near you. All treats, no tricks. And you're chicken if you miss the house of Frankenstein. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear that JLI Teleporter has brought both Captain Entropy and JT the Exterminator together for us. 
Now, first, Captain Entropy, thank you so much for appearing on the show. I'm so glad. It's, it's been a long time, us getting here, but I'm thrilled we finally had a chance to chat. Would you please tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs? Wherever there is a need for disorder and chaos, Captain Entropy will be there. Unfortunately, most places on the internet are totally full up on disorder and chaos, so I mostly <laughs> hang out here at Fire and Water, commenting and occasionally guessing. I also get mentioned from time to time on the Longbox Crusade. One of my daughters calls that the network I cheat on Fire and Water with. <laughs> but if you keep listening to Fire and Water, you might hear more from me very soon. Oh, and before I leave, I have to say this episode should drop on uh, the Air Force's 75th birthday. So in a very self-serving way, I will say happy birthday to the Air Force. That's fantastic. That is amazing. Oh, wow. You know, the, the military theme of the issue with General Glory, the you being a guest to the birthday. That's wonderful. And uh, as I should have said earlier, thank you for your service, by the way. Oh, thank you, Shag. It was an honor to serve and most of the time a pleasure. <laughs> well, I sincerely appreciate you being on the show. I've really, really enjoyed chatting. We've had a lot of fun. There's been a lot of off-air laughs. There's been on-air laughs. It's been really, really a wonderful time. So thank you so much for being here, Captain. Absolutely. It was great meeting you too, Shag, and, and, uh, and getting to go through this comic with you. It's always an honor and a pleasure to support heroic comedy. All right. Now, JT, thank you so much for appearing. Um, hey, um, hold on a minute. Um, J- JT, there's there's something on your face. It's um, is that one of the starros on your face? It is one of the starros on my face, and I am Starro. Uh, I'm a little flummoxed. Sorry. Uh, so is JT still in there? Yeah, he's in there, but, you know, you're talking about me this entire episode, and, I, you know, I think you wanted to talk to the big guy, didn't you? Uh-huh. It is just a comic book, right? Um, so, at this point, I would ask JT where the listeners could find him on the internet. Do you want to pitch something, Starro? Yeah, sure. I, I can be found at a couple of places, actually. I run a blog where I rate and review pizzerias at StarroLikesSparrow at blogspot.com. So you guys can hit me up there. And uh, I've recently started a podcast, 1001 Reasons I Hate Lime and Also Snapper Car. (laughs) That might actually have a pretty big following. (laughs) I I don't understand the laughter. These are all very serious. Yes. uh, Terribly sorry, Mr. The Conqueror. Okay, that that sounds pretty nice. <laughs> All right, well, uh, thank you, Starro uh, and JT, uh, for being on the show. Uh, now, uh, folks, that this is super awkward. Uh, folks, this is going to do it. Uh, we're going to end the episode here, but when we come back next time, we are going to take another sidestep, this time into Justice League Quarterly number three, uh, which has, by the way, another homage to the legendary Justice League number one cover, and we'll have another guest host to help me cover the issue. Who will it be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're just just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Captain Entropy. And I'm Starro the Conqueror. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?